Hello and welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast flashing side butt and hip. Every week on This Head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my king of hell, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Joe... I am very Hale, sorry for the Hale sacrifice payment. that I have made for us. It will all be worth it in the end. You will understand. How many times have you seen Hereditary now that you've with counting this latest one? Uh, maybe like uh, this was probably my third or fourth watch. I, I, I it's either my third or fourth watch myself. Um, every time I see it, I learn more about the plot, which I like. Like I get a little bit more of a little inkling about what's going on. I don't know if I was just more attuned, if I could get visual information better pre-pandemic, but... Oh, were you more confused? Yeah. No, 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 no. I feel like when this movie came out, everyone was like, I don't get it. What the hell was going on? I was like, it's all right there. You just pay attention. Oh. Did you I got not get it. to read that whole letter in the 10 seconds that it was on screen? Because it's all right there. It's the whole plot. The movie opens with an obituary. The grandmother is the main character. She kind of is movie. the main character. No, yeah. she's the main character. She's the orchestrator of all of this. Like, but there are but there are details you pick up with subsequent viewings that like make the whole thing richer. I understood like the thing. I got the whole payment thing. But like I remember having to explain to people <laughs> that the explanation for everything is in that letter or the note or whatever to that her she daughter. finds like, in the book. Yeah, yeah. Like you align that with the pictures of what's happening with her and Antoud throwing a coin party, and it's like you never yes, throw me a coin she party, Chris. The you next call year. yourself my friend, and yet you have never in your life thrown me a coin party where people just sort of drop coins on my face. Well, Joe, the thing is, if we're going to have a coin party, it's a huge commitment because you are essentially committing to have children and to, like, raise children who who's, would have children. Whose children like, would then host the, the King of Hell. I get it. Until I get it. you have a male in the family. Right. Because who doesn't Payman kill needs themselves. a male host. So, right. Payman, by the way, is I'm very... I'm not throwing you a coin party because... Neither of us want to have children, so... Fine. I would have to accept and not be mad at you for 
changing your mind. I want you, I want to have a coin party without having children the same way I want to have a wedding reception without getting married. Yeah, you want to pull the Carrie Bradshaw. I do. She's getting married to herself. I don't. You're having a coin party to yourself. I do not sympathize or align with Carrie Bradshaw on much, but the idea of why should just the people who decide to get married get free shit from their friends to help furnish their home? I very much align with. So I am Miranda thing to say. What? (laughs) Why to be the prag the pragmatic aspect of it rather than Carrie just being the like I deserve things because I'm pretty. Like yeah, (laughs) no, no, that's not what. Okay, fine. We can't get into a Sex in the City conversation in the hereditary hereditary episode. episode. (laughs) I'll throw you a coin party if you want to have a coin party. Where Where are you registered at this coin party? Oh, God. Where does one register for a coin party? You register at that store. The Denver Mint. (laughs) I'm registered at the Denver Mint, and I would like (laughs) um, 50 cent pieces and dimes. Those are my preferred coins. So, Sacagawea dollars, hit me up. If you have a Sacagawea, please, we've been through this in previous parties. You have to get those converted ahead of time for the party. It does not work if you are trying to get your progeny to be the host for a demon. Um, Thank you. That's a good... get uh, those coins converted. Get those coins converted. I will also accept toonies, though, and just go across the border and convert them into uh, American currency. Um, I understand why people get frustrated by this movie in terms of okay. not understanding what's going on. <laughs> because, like, I think Ari Aster wants an obsessive audience that pays so much attention. It's the same thing with Midsommar, too. And I think that's why I kind of like those those. Two I think Midsommar is much more straightforward, though. Or not straightforward. Hereditary is straightforward. The thing with Hereditary is, though, is, like, you're expected to know and, like, I think you can make it through this movie and just sort of like get the general gist and you're good. Like at some point it's just like, I like Tony Collette's cutting her head off. Like, of course she is. Um, But it's like the, like, what is the like weird laser light thing that passes through people? Or like, what, what does the clucking entail? Like I truly ritual. I think the rich, some rituals in some way. And they're, and they're also, it's just like, Oh, that's payment shit. You know what I mean? It's just like, if you don't understand something, it's probably payment up to his tricks. Payment's up to his tricks, just like God's up to his tricks at the holidays. Um, Shout out to Matt Rogers and his new album. Okay. Um, I'm excited to talk about this movie. I'm very excited to talk about this movie. Yeah. Um, it's It's our annual spooky season entry. We tend to try and do- We decided this is an annual thing. Yeah, well, it's and and picking through and finding a movie that is both legitimately scary and also legitimately had some kind of awards buzz is tricky, and so we like to uh, answer that challenge. And this definitely counts for both of them. I also feel like, for as much as it's going to be annoying, Chris, I want to commit ourselves to having the elevated horror conversation finally in this episode. Gird your so, loins. I mean, we're, steal we're yourself. enough from the conversation being annoying. I think it's somewhat taken for granted. But I think to talk about this movie, you yes. have to have that conversation. You have to. It's, it's, conversation especially for our purposes of this podcast, I think we are the most 
obligated to talk about the elevated horror thing because like sure. that's sort of what people are talking about when people who are annoyed about movies like putting on airs or whatever um i think people are talking about oh you want your movie to get an oscar nomination and we'll talk about it um but i genuinely I love this movie. So I'm I'm really excited to sort of get into the ins and outs of it. And I think you enjoy it's this movie, time. right? This is this I enjoy is this one movie of quite a bit. I yeah. I I will say while I I think you've soured on Ari this year because of Bo. I I am so happy that he got that movie out of his system. <laughs> uh I what I was gonna what I'll say is while I am quite pro on this movie, mm. I absolutely understand anybody's opinion, thoughts on this movie across the spectrum. Okay. I will rely on you to to provide that to me because I kind of I I was trying to cast around earlier and I don't think I gave people enough time to respond to me. I wanted I do want to understand what it is about Ari Aster that makes some people, like, just hate him. You know what I mean? Like, beyond just the fact that, like, oh, that movie didn't work for me, whatever, whatever. It's the same thing with I don't understand the people who are, like, knee-jerk anti-A24. Like, I don't... I don't get it. I don't I know think, what kind I of impulse that is. is just a symptom of being too online. Because in a way, they can Maybe. also seem like a too online... Uh, com- mark- marketing, uh, you know, uh, sure uh, house aside from a production. I'm just so happy that an indie studio knows well enough to market itself well so that it doesn't fucking die. You know what I mean? And it still might die. A24 still might end up either selling itself or like redefining itself into oblivion with this new. I, I, I didn't freak out as much when they had the thing about A24 is going to start. Um, what was the what was the actual wording? They're of looking the... for. I don't even think the words IP were used. It was I. Yeah, but 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 that was the that was the that was interpretation. Somewhat of the gist, but like people took it to mean they're going to be making superhero movies, which I mean, and I don't kind of think... did make a superhero movie with everything everywhere all at once. It plays like one, but like that's not sure. What but means. like, but that's sort of what I'm talking about. If they're going to do that, they're going to do it their way. And like everything everywhere all at once for a superhero movie is not the thing that people hate about superhero movies. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, I think people expecting them to all of a sudden become just another cookie cutter, same old, same old, are are maybe, maybe people catastrophizing a little bit too much. The thing is, they do make a range of movies. They I do. mean, you look at their movies this year alone. Like they, you know, lost. Gonna make me much pull up the A twenty four page again. Bo is afraid, but they're also releasing uh, Zone of Interest. They're also releasing Past Life. You know, they they do make a range of yeah. product, unlike a lot of other places anymore. Um, so that I think is commendable. I also think it's commendable regardless what like anyone thinks about any of these movies. They can make an uncut gems and it makes fifty million dollars at the box office. They can make hereditary and it makes fifty million dollars at the box office. They make Ladybird mm-hmm. and it makes that money. So it's like mm-hmm. there's a range in like the success of their movies, but like some of them this was their highest grossing movie uh at the time and yeah. like I, I think their financial success, whereas like 
we shouldn't be like money matters um but like it is we should, significant. yeah we should be like money monster george clooney's uh show on money Monster. <laughs> look at a24's 2023 though and this is sort of just like it's partial but like kelly reichardt's showing up ari aster's but Bo- was afraid nicole holofcener's you hurt my feelings celine song's past lives um uh oh the uh the horror movie talk to me that i still haven't seen that you hated um dicks the musical which just came out which you just saw redacted um (laughs) priscilla upcoming all dirt roads tasted of salt upcoming dream scenario upcoming zone of interest upcoming iron claw upcoming that's a fucking interesting year at the very least that's an interesting and varied year so you're incredibly right that you've got comedies in there and dramas and horror and like talky indie stuff and more like uh aesthetically uh concentrated indie stuff like a sofia coppola movie you've got auteur stuff you've got international stuff you've got you know and then even in terms of just like release stuff, the fact that they, you know, some of these went the festival route and some of these went, you know, Sundance to a spring opening and like whatever their confidence in the Iron Claw to open it on December 22nd without putting it through the festivals. I'm crossing my fingers that that's the right <laughs> thing to do. And I'm crossing my fingers that it means something because you know how much I love Sean Durkin and Sean Durkin doing a movie about the Von Erich family of professional wrestlers is like so pointed toward me you know what i mean that like i will be very disappointed like a sean durkin movie i will say it didn't but that Um, made me more interested because i'm like i i really don't think he would have not made a sean durkin movie so like it's there it's gonna be there right yeah it's it's lurking and i don't know i'm excited all right loop it back to hereditary and what you were saying in terms of the reception of this movie yeah while i would say i understand all responses to this movie across the spectrum, I get it. I also feel like, across the spectrum, this is also a movie that everyone is annoying about, in the way that like, what you were saying too, that it's just like, people hate this movie so much and then... You think the people, people who loved who this movie were loved it too much? For this movie, mm-hmm. And everyone's know, annoying man. about this movie, but it's also a movie I like. So I'm so much more... I lend so much more leeway to people being annoying about a thing that they genuinely loved. Whereas it's something. It's not true because when it's a pop girly, it annoys you. Yeah. But I don't think I, I, I don't always think that that's genuine. I, I, I think a lot of that is performative. Okay. Okay. I do. I do. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I, I believe you. I believe you. But also Music and movies are two separate things to me. I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? Like, I, I love movies and. Sure, 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 sure. Movies are a different thing. And then you're right. There are, there are certain people who are annoying in their love of certain movies, but I do feel like that always comes across to me as not genuine and performative. And with Hereditary, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like writing it a, a permission slip because I liked it so much, but. It's also sometimes like, because of course we're going to talk about Tony Collette and Tony Collette's performance in this movie. There's a certain way that like people who like scream from the rooftops about this performance 
Yeah. Make it just about screaming. Yes. And I think or, or, or like the facial reactions or whatever. Yes. I agree with that. I and agree with that. Like, and I think, you know, there's some, this, there's something about her performance in this movie that like, yeah, this is a performer who just like gets it and gets what this is supposed to be. And, yeah. uh, just this, the levels of it, the lack yeah. of reality that this is supposed to be like, Generally it takes speaking, place inside a dollhouse. The whole thing right. takes place inside a dollhouse. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't know. This is. Uh, it's, a, it's the Skinnamarink universe. This movie <laughs> takes place inside the Skinnamarink universe. It's more opera than it yeah. is realistic drama. Like, the thing that I talked about, about the things that you get out of this movie, seeing it a third or fourth time or whatever, this viewing. Her performance in particular took on a very specific flavor where I really locked into the infantile nature of Annie as a character. And mm-hmm. like, she's so immature. She's such a child in the way Along she. Along with Alex Wolf, too. I well, that's the thing. Time. And especially when the two of them are, inter- are interacting together, she's such a child in the way that she, like, will go back and forth with him or like. You know what I mean? And they'll just yeah. sort of like, they'll, or in the way where she's like, she'll be like, the thing where she builds the diorama of Charlie's death location. And Gabriel Byrne walks in and he's like, what the fuck? And she's like, what? This is a neutral POV. It's just <laughs> how it happened. And it's like, you are being a child about this. You are trying, you know what I mean? It's just, and, and the, the argument, the one that everybody clips and, and, uh, I've seen at least one drag queen lip sync to um, where she's talking about, I'm your mother, that whole thing. And the, yeah. the funniest line in that is when she goes, and all I get is that fucking face on your face. And like, that's something that a child would say. You know what I mean? It's like, it's somebody who doesn't yes. know that like has have enough of a vocabulary to come up with a better word than that fucking face on your face. Every time on this rewatch, every time that Alex Wolf cried and he did that, like, literal like eight month old cry yes. sobs on his father's shoulder yeah like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. he's where it's just like you so look good. you look at like a niece or nephew and you are like yeah. you are fake crying right now um he does that and it's so funny that's the thing about this we're gonna movie. talk this about alex wolf so funny we're gonna um, talk about alex wolf later on i genuinely think it's one of the best performances of that year and there was no way he was getting even close to anything yeah, of no, like a nomination and no. it's too bad because he um, fucking rules in this movie oh, uh, what was striking to me aside from that and the comedy of their childishness yeah in this movie with annie on this watch is how she has everything completely wrong at all times at all times and and she's like the, i'm the only one who can fix this i know what's going on i figured it out she and says it's like, that but she doesn't know what's Absolutely going on not. she has it not all a wrong. bit not a and bit as it progresses she has it wrong in a way that she has been led down a path to believe something is right yeah. so that yeah. basically the you know coven can uh right kill her i'm watching uh the current season of american horror story for work which is a very frustrating experience um you don't say well 
I'm I and I am less of a knee jerk hater of both American Horror Story and Ryan Murphy than most people. So like, take this with you know all that due context. This season is particularly frustrating. I've been a fan of Emma Roberts in the past, and I don't want to be the person who like all of a sudden has decided that she's a bad actor because she's been revealed as a bad person with the whole thing with um we knew all of that too is the thing it's did like, we we did when i remember i remember when she got the domestic abuse charges against him oh right with evan peters i forgot about that i don't think i really looked into that that much oh well yes and then there's the stuff with angelica ross too and that's, that's the that, that's the thing that i'm talking about that like came out just as this season of american horror story was premiering so it's like i I have liked, I've loved Emma Roberts in the past on American Horror Story. I think she's really bad this season. I think Matt Zucri as her husband is really bad. I think, I know no one's going to believe me because people just want to like poptimism Kim Kardashian into the Pantheon or whatever. But like, Kim's awful. And so, yeah, that's the clip I saw going around that one day of how she's like, you need to get a Gotham Award. Speaking of which, we'll be talking about the Gothams. We will. Uh, I was like, I have very knee-jerk resistance when people are like, this was just made for the memes and such. When yeah. I saw that, I was like, no, this is the first thing that I have seen that this was made for me. There is a holistic, like, and I may end up writing about this, there's a holistic uh, angle to the way that this season of American Horror Story talks about award season that I think is worth talking about because they are either being incredibly silly and stupid or they're being like very like harshly comedic about it. And it's one of the two and I haven't quite decided. But anyway, all the stuff that's happening on the periphery of this season of American Horror Story is really good and funny. I love Deborah Monk and Julie White getting to have like an entire scene where they just sort of like info dump, but like in a really interesting way. Wow. But you you really just said in like 10 words or less something that might actually get me to watch this. This is what I'm saying. But this is this is the classic wow. Ryan Murphy thing. But regardless, so the thing that I was going to say that pulls it into hereditary is uh Haley Pfeiffer is writing this season rather than Ryan Murphy. They they got uh, uh, one writer to write every single episode and the whole thing is based on a book. So it's a really sort of I think not great uh mishmash of Ryan Murphy influences and also like a primary source and also somebody else adapting that primary source. There's a lot of like, what's going on here? Whose voice are we listening to? Mm. But there's a, but there's such a strong and unsubtle, uh, believe women theme to the season. Cause the whole thing is like, it's like a Rosemary's baby riff. She's pregnant and she, nobody believes her when she says somebody is following her and nobody believes her when she says somebody like, uh, you know, uh, did this procedure on her that made her lose the baby. And then she thinks she's still pregnant and nobody believes her then. And it turns out she is. And so the whole thing is very like all caps, believe women. This show is about how you like should believe women. Sure, 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 sure. Hereditary is a movie about the opposite. Hereditary is a movie about you should not believe this woman because everything she says is wrong okay. at all times. If If we're talking about theme... This is where I get on my soapbox and like it's like, it. well, if Chris thinks this movie is about this, of course Chris loves this movie. <laughs> this movie is about the toxicity of oh, the god. nuclear unit. Oh god. And the oh, suburban family unit. Because this oh, is a no. movie oh, that no. in metaphorical terms says 
Your entire life is planned out for you. There is nothing you can do it to does say stop that. what your life is going to be because generations before you have decided what your life is. And that's what your life is just going to be. You can't avoid it. And it is that is what this movie is saying. And he has said that. Ari Aster has said that. That essentially it's like this is a horror movie about a sacrifice being told from the POV of the sacrificial lambs. And there's just like there's absolutely if they weren't he if they weren't going to get Payman into Peter one way, they would have done it another way, right? They tried to get Annie's brother when he was a kid and that didn't work so then like they tried to get it to peter but she wouldn't let her mother near peter when peter was a kid so like plan b was charlie and that was imperfect but whatever and they decided no we're gonna try and figure out a way now to get payment from charlie into peter and it was just gonna happen one way or another there was really nothing any of them could do to stop it and you're right like that is that interpretation of this is correct urban home I is mean, it suburban? Affluent There's, suburban. In they like, live. It's set in like Utah or something. They live so far from everywhere else. The the when Pete when Peter has to like drive away from the party to drive Charlie to the hospital, and he makes that like turn off of this like dust road where this house like where the fuck was this house party in the middle of the goddamn <laughs> desert, and yet his family lives in the middle of the woods where also there is like nowhere around them there is but like I, mountain desert woods sure and but like i don't i don't think it's suburbs it's more just like they live in a universe where no other houses kind of exist like the only other houses you ever see are when she goes to to um what's Ann doubts joan when she goes you to know Joan's when you house. like step outside Department. of the house in beetlejuice and it's just the desert yeah and there's a sandworm yes that's where yeah. they live that they yes. live that in a real world version 100 percent, 100 percent. and it's also like you mentioned like it's all set in a dollhouse like it truly is like yeah her children and her grand or her child i guess we only see one of her children yeah uh, her child and her grandchildren are her little dolls to play house with and uh you know yeah it's the idea that and yet she doesn't seem to she i mean that this becomes text later on in the movie she doesn't seem to want them she doesn't seem to want even charlie who like she loses her mind when charlie dies and she's like she's so angry at charlie all the time when charlie's alive she gets mad when she leaves the house she gets mad when she has a chocolate bar she tries to like force her to go to this like high school party where she knows there's going to be like drinking or whatever. Why the fuck would she want Charlie to go there other than to get her out of the house so she can be alone to do her little miniatures or whatever. <laughs> like she's kind of an, I don't want to say like she's an awful mother because like that's a rubric that I don't think needs to apply to a movie like this. But like, she's clearly somebody who like does not need her need or particularly seem to want her children around her to she make her happy. She even says at one point that she her totally mother made that. her have children. Which it's like how like truly physically how is that possible? Um, I don't know about your <laughs> your screening of this movie, but I remember so vividly, and I'm almost certain I saw a press screening of this movie. Um, first, my very first screening was a press screening. Um, when she says, "I never wanted to have you," and she then claps her hand over her mouth as soon as she says it, like I can't believe that escaped my mouth or whatever. That was the biggest laugh line of the entire movie because yep. it's it's. Yep so funny the way she just like blurts it out like that and it's so blunt but it's like it's the thing we're all sort of thinking I and saw so it, i saw it twice i saw it in a press screening and then i went back and saw it when i went back and saw it with like yeah. a paying audience that was mostly empty 
it was a lot of older people. I mean, I saw it in a matinee. Maybe that's what it was. But are you sure people... this wasn't a cult of uh, pavement worshippers? Now that you mention it, they were all naked and just like standing <laughs> around the perimeter of the screening room, staring at you and smiling for some reason. That's <laughs> the worst did, one. When did horror movies just decide that the scariest thing in the world is just a naked guy? Like. I don't know, but, like, it works in this movie. Like, it's not... To me, it's not the nudity. Well, it is. There's... They're, like, smiling. They're smiling, but it's also this idea... And they're... they're right, and there have been things written recently about, like, after Barbarian and after... um, What was the M. Night Shyamalan movie? It follows. Movie? There's a naked guy and it follows. It follows uh, The Visit, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Visit. All of these movies have the sort of like the horror of the elderly, especially female body, but also like male body. Um, but in this movie in particular, it's just that like people are just at the periphery when you didn't realize. Like there are shots in this movie. There's I'm a always naked guy the in the woods in one of the establishing shots of the There's house that like so it's not just one. Chris, go back and look at that shot again. Pull and like, like, almost, it's almost like looking at a magic eye painting and let your eyes unfocus. They're everywhere in that shot. There's yeah. a shot when he goes up into the attic towards the end before anybody jumps out at him. There's like a naked person in the background of a shot. There are people like, it's like the, it's also like the fact that that was the other great thing about the first time I saw this movie was the I shot. I have a first of, time I saw this thing. Tony Collette on the ceiling? Yes, the same story. Uh, first of all, the naked guy in the woods, I was the only one who saw it because I full, like, gasp, and people were like, what? I was like, there's yes. a naked guy. Um, yes. But the shot of Tony Collette in the corner, the waves that went through... Yes, it's great. Like, a crowd of 20 people. I saw it, like, first, and... People, you know, like, you know, when you're paying attention in a horror movie and people just jump because you jump and they don't know why uh-huh. we're jumping. And then there would be like another person's heart and then another and then another person's heart. It was. Yeah. Hello, my darling children who I would never harm in any way. Um, <laughs> uh, we interrupt. Louis. Oh, Louis. <laughs> oh, Louis. Louis, can you draw something? Louis, oh. will you show us that you're a ghost? Louis, Louis, will The you way Anne Dowd says coins? Louis is not unrelated to the way she says Hulu, so truly, uh... Louis, bring <laughs> me some coins. <laughs> bring me good familiars. Um, okay. We re- we interrupt this uh, this hereditary discussion to talk to you about the Vulture Movie Fantasy League, which at this point is well swinging like a like a satanic meeting up in the treehouse to crown payment. We are there's a rocking and rolling on the board. There are multiple box office hits. That's true. Marty's got a hit. Uh, uh, Taylor's got a hit. We're we're rocking uh, and rolling. Freddie's got a hit. Uh, you know, are those numbers? I haven't looked at those numbers. Is is Five Nights at Freddy's doing well despite its It's awful rate? uh, Awful a wild opening, like seventy five million plus. Whoa! Well, that will offset the fact that I've seen nobody give it more than one star. (laughs) I know. I was gonna bring up the letterbox logs. I'm like this. No one likes this movie. People hate this movie. Um, Granted, I've. I mean, like, apparently the target audience for this movie is like. Not just like Gen Z, but like eighteen-year-olds. So ugh, I ugh, don't follow many of them on Letterbox because I would feel like a creep if I deliver did. me. 
Um, is this or is this not also available on Peacock like right now? It is. It is. Which was yeah. the plan initially, like when they struck the deal for the movie. Like, yeah. This is just one of those things that it's like sometimes there's these lingering uh, movies that, and you know, once it's in a contract, a contract that you signed maybe years ago, it's right, you know, right, right, right. But yes, and apparently it's not the the analysis I was reading on Deadline. Don't kill me was um, (laughs) that's more expected to like hurt second weekend than first yeah. weekend because well, everybody that's like the diehards for it are going to go and yeah. show up to the theater it's a good opening and then like, like jesus you and i who didn't really know what the hell this thing was nope nope uh you know two months i'm ago. literally like i'd like to see it because i have nostalgia for chuck e cheese like <laughs> could not be more of an old that's fine um, we had a knockoff Chuck E. Cheese called Major Magics that we would go to, uh, that was essentially the same thing. Animatronic animals in a band, video arcade, skee-ball, which is what exactly what I flocked to, and that was fine by me. So, good for that. Alright, so, Vulture Movie Fantasy League, we got, like, like Chris said, we got some, uh, box office stuff, we got some, uh... Uh, sorry, one second. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Vulture Movie Fantasy League. We got some box office numbers. We got some Gotham Awards awards numbers. Uh, so it's kind of hitting all quadrants at this point, or at least most of, most of them. So box office this weekend, Killers of the Flower Moon opened up to $23 million, which is pretty good for a three and a half hour movie directed straight for adults about making you feel bad and that's not about making you feel bad but like if i'm gonna be glib about it um it's about complicity it is it's so good i just saw it so i'm kind of riding on a high of killers of the flower moon um obviously finished second to the eras tour which picked up another 30 or so million last week pushed it north of the $100 million threshold, so uh, it got that bonus, and it's a it's a points bonanza. Eras, uh, as of last week's newsletter, had gotten uh, 229 points total, but Killers of the Flower Moon is off to a very good start, and considering that it's also going to be a major player in awards season, anybody who drafted that movie is probably feeling very good, and feeling like... I thought if you I- had some good perspective about its points tally uh in the newsletter last week uh, comparing it to what the irishman did i went through and i did a little exercise if you subscribe to the the movie fantasy league newsletter i went through and i tallied up all the points that the irishman would have accumulated had the fantasy league been in this particular point structure back then and that's a movie that did not have any box office because it was netflix so just awards wise and and with uh, the caveat that the Irishman got blanked at the Oscars, like did not win a single Academy Award, it still would have pulled you 950 points. So like conceivable that, you know, it would have had a higher buy in, you know, I think. Right. The buy-in oh, for right. Flower Moon would be similar to what the Irishman would have had that year. Right. So I think if you're if you're. Had I drafted Killers of the Flower Moon, one of my worries would have been is, oh, is this just going to crater at the box office like the last couple big Spielbergs have? Um, And that didn't happen. So, like, that's hurdle one, because there is the 
only real way to keep this movie out of, I think, the best picture lineup is if it attracts the stench of failure. And it has now uh, cleared that hurdle. Like, that is not going to happen for Killers of the Flower Moon. So we are, all systems go, I think, for a best picture uh, nomination, and we'll see where it goes from there. And this point, with some things I haven't uh, seen, uh, obviously, you've seen more than I have. Uh, I hope it wins. (laughs) It's very good. Uh, we'll say we'll save conversation about the movie though because we may be talking about it in one of our Patreon Collins. Anyway, that's true. All right, but um, um, and also we'll end up talking about this a lot throughout the rest of Oscar season. Yeah, we're um, gonna have a lot to say, but feet. I also think you know people will continue to have a lot of things to say about this movie. So the other big points uh, getter this week was the through the Gotham Awards. So uh, a lot of the smaller movies. This is this was a good day for a lot of five dollar buys. If you bought All of Us Strangers or A Thousand and One or uh, Passages, all of those movies would have only cost you five dollars, uh, and they got pretty good points return already. You're already well on your way to getting some good return for those movies. Um, all of, So the Gothams split up their best feature category between domestic feature and international feature. But for international feature, they count UK stuff. So like All of Us Strangers is a international feature. Uh, uh, also counting for international feature are Poor Things and Anatomy of a Fall and The Zone of Interest. And also a movie called Totem. Uh, that I don't know if I had heard of, but good uh, I believe that was Totem. a Berlin movie. The indicator that it was going to be the um, Mexican submission, I believe it's the Mexican submission, mm. uh, it ended up being one of the sneak previews at Telluride this year. Oh, okay. Um, and then in regular Best Feature, you have Past Lives and Passages, uh, Kelly Reichardt's Showing Up, which was a nice economical oh, yeah. $2 oh. buy. So if you bought showing up for $2, you got a whopping 30 points already off of that, which is some really good uh, point per dollar. Um, 1001, as I mentioned, uh, the Sundance champion shows up here. And Reality, which I thought was an HBO movie, but I guess the Gotham's was, but it was independently produced before HBO bought and it. It, um, played, it yeah, premiered yeah, at yeah. Berlin, yeah. Um, and I believe also played South by, but HBO snatched it up. Yeah. So okay, my uh, well, I guess top line notes: All of Us Strangers picks up the most nominations. It gets fifty points on the day. So like, All of Us Strangers is kind of the big winner. But like, Past Lives and A Thousand and One each get you forty points. Zone of Interest got you thirty five. Showing up in passages got you 30. So there's a lot of good stuff here. It was a good my, day for my team. All but one of my drafts earned some points that day. Is that what was your only non point scorer? Boring the Heron. Oh, sure. Which is going to do fine for you. It's so. going to do fine. I need to bring up the thing I was pissy about. Which was, <laughs> which also is why um, all but one of because this movie is in my team. So uh, they nominated 10, 10 performances in lead and 10 performances in supporting. And some really good ones are in there. For as baffling as I found Origin, I thought Anjanue Ellis was great. So I'm glad Agreed. that she got nominated. Um, some contenders are up there. Andrew Scott for All of Us Strangers. Greta Lee for Past Lives. Uh, Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. Kaylee Spaney for uh, Priscilla. You also got Tiana Taylor for 1001. Okay. Hell yeah. Here's what I'm saying to you, Chris. This is maybe bad discourse. This is maybe be me indulging in bad discourse, but I'm just going to say it anyway. 
there's every opportunity for people in Hollywood to start the same exact kind of grassroots campaign for Tiana Taylor that they did for Andrea Riseborough. I mean, that's all I'll listen, say. We are a very, very pro Tiana Taylor uh, podcast here. I hope uh, all listeners, if we haven't uh, banged the drum for this movie enough in recent episodes and Patreon episodes, at this point, I cannot remember where we're talking about things. It might even be episodes that are in the future because yeah. these past two weekends have just been a marathon. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, go watch 1001 on Amazon Prime. But if 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 the same people that, you know, grassroots the the Andrea Riseborough nomination also want to support another movie that is not getting the kind of infrastructure to get nominations, uh, find your screener of a thousand and one and maybe uh, get to work on that. I also love I love that showing up got as many nominations as it did because absolutely that's a good should have gotten more. I would have loved a Hong Chao nomination in supporting mm-hmm. because I love her in that. Mm-hmm. All right. So on to the supporting perfor- uh, nominations, which Juliette Binoche in The Taste of Things. Shout Apparently out. it's uh, a supporting performance. Shout out George from Minneapolis who uh, got at us on our uh, on our mailbag line. Um, some interesting and good ones. Love a Rachel McAdams nomination for Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Charles Melton for May December, awesome. Divine jo- Joy Randolph in The Holdovers, awesome. Claire Foy in All of Us Strangers, very good. And we are going to have that conversation that I promised. Once you see that movie, we're going to have a conversation about it. Penelope Cruz and Ferrari, which I find a little funny because everybody I talk to is like, I'm like, Penelope Cruz and Ferrari, is that a real thing? And they're like, no. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, and then the thing that sort of burned my britches, uh, which was they nominated Ryan Gosling for Barbie. Now, listen, Barbie rules. Ryan Gosling rules. Ryan Gosling as Ken in Barbie rules. What the fuck are the Gothams for if they're nominating Barbie? Take it up with the nomination jury for this no, category. No, I mean... I'm, na- I'm taking it up with you right now, who always defends the Gothams when I uh, when I complain about the Gothams. Is I this... can't defend the decision to allow studio movies in there. Is this not them being as craven as the critics' choice always are? I mean, as craven they wanted... as the critics' choice, I don't know. I, I, I think if this is not celebrating independent film, they really need to be firm in what their identity is supposed to be rather than... They remove... You can't the... even say New York taste because their juries aren't all New York critics. Right. So... At I... this point, they're just another group sort of like yammering for attention. They took away the budget cap so that they could, you know, do something like this this year. And it's like... Are you just trying to hop onto this Barbie awards train that like Barbie's going to get nominated everywhere and you want into? It looks so desperate. It looks so pick me. Like I hate to use, I hate to, I hate that term, but like it does sort of seem that way, right? And it's, yet I, will it's like oh, I hope Ryan Gosling shows up, and but like can any the strike's not going to be settled by the end of November? Ryan Gosling nomination from the Gothams. Let me be clear, but yeah. I do. I do always like the Gothams because they do support a lot of these things like we've mentioned that may not even show up at Indie Spirits, you know, like... Okay, you always... You and I are at very interesting opposite ends because whenever I say that very thing about the Independent Spirit Awards, you're like, but you can buy your way into it and you can vote for whatever. And but it's like, like Indie Spirits are inarguably a larger 
awards show than the Gothams are. But the Gothams do end up showing up for these, like, movies that, you know, even Indie Spirit doesn't end up nominating, which Indie Spirit is a juried nomination process, though I don't think they really publish what their jury is and then yes you can buy your way into voting for those awards but the indie spirits will also end up nominating some things that the gothams didn't you know what i mean like there's it's 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 yes, given yes. it's given this take. is why i think you know it's better it gets all of these movies more attention it gives us an opportunity to say hey go watch a thousand and one and who knows if a thousand and one will get a best feature nomination at indie spirits you know it's I hope possible so. but like there's also a lot of indie spirits favorites this year some of which are nominated by the gothams like kelly reichardt iris Sachs. but like Gotham's always like they'll do something like throw a screenplay nomination at ra rmn which is a great movie and like yeah. that's cool and but all like, of the press coverage on this was about the Go- was about the Gosling nomination, and it's not like I'm not going to wag my finger at anybody who did that because, of course, that's what they talked about. That's why the Gotham's nominated him. Like that was the whole point to begin with. So, like, what good are your awards if they're just going to get swallowed up by the biggest movie of the year? I mean, I also think. My other thing is like Ryan Gosling isn't going to show up to these awards. Well, nobody is at this point. The the. The strike is still probably going to be going on. Because the Gothams are obnoxiously early in the awards season. So for me, it it might, that's why I wouldn't throw a vote around it because like the advocacy is a powerful thing because it will put more eyes on something like a thousand and one or passages, you know. Think of, there's so many supporting performances in actual indies this year that could have gotten a nomination there. And it's just, Hong Chao, any of it, like, so many, so many. And it's it's just, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. Also, I mean, like, Ferrari is an independent movie in the way that Cloud Atlas is an independent movie. Sure, and that, right. Like, this also is a that. movie with a massive budget that also that. was, like, independently financed. Yeah. But, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, it, that's not that's not apples to oranges. Well, and like because like you know, yeah, Cloud Atlas eventually was distributed by Warner Brothers. And like Neon is not Warner Brothers, even though they're amazing, right? Right. And like they clone Tyrone is Netflix, and Netflix is also like sort of as is right. like May December, right. I guess. So, um, I mean, technically speaking, I don't. I do think that Lionsgate produced "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." I could be wrong. So, like, even that's not an independent production. But like, then if you get into if well, you is get Lionsgate into part of the budgets, studios, or is Lionsgate? You know what I mean? Like, Lionsgate's I do kind of a tweener. They are part of the AMPTP, but they're just okay. not considered a major studio anymore. Okay, okay. Um, I could be wrong there. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, all right, anyway. so. I love the Gothams. Yeah, I know you do. Some of these nominations are weird. They are. All right. Um, One last uh, thing we did. I did say last week that we would talk about the leaderboard at in the All of Us Gary's League, the uh, Gary's specific uh, part of the uh, movie fantasy league, and now I'm pulling Nicole up the Kidman's leaderboard. Divorce photos. You have been dethroned. We apologize. Yes. Sorry about your luck. Your time will come again. Yes. Uh, oh yeah. Like these scores are going to um, fluctuate wildly. Um, all right. I on. would argue you really don't want to be ahead in this race. That's not a uniform rule. For like years moving forward, but this year I don't think you want to be leading this early. 
maybe not maybe not this early. Certainly not before Oppenheimer's gotten any awards points because I do feel like that's going to loom large. All right, but anyway, congratulations at this point goes to Team Slacker Millionaire, who with 40, 478 points is leading the All of Us Gary's League. Their roster, Killers of the Flower Moon, obviously very big, uh, and Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour. So they're cleaning up in box office. They've got Poor Things, which only got one nomination at the Gothams, which is kind of interesting in uh, international feature. Um but anyway, Priscilla showing up. So they got those nice, sweet showing up points. Past Lives also did well at the Gotham's Zone of Interest also did well at the Gotham's. And then Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie, which was our very first box office champion of this season. So everything on Slacker Millionaire's roster has gotten points in some way or another, which is how you do it in the early part of the season to get your spot on the top of the list. So, um, also in the ranked number 18 in the entire game. We love seeing a Gary that highly ranked. I'm looking at some of the other, uh, team names we shouted out last week, Nicole Kidman's divorce photos. Love it. Um, (laughs) Benny Softy must be stopped. A person after my own heart, honestly. (laughs) Um, God bless. God bless. Um, let's see. The eldest boy, we love it. Um, the Kendall Roy is officially a Gary. We always knew he would be. Um, Sandra Huller Eris Tor. <laughs> I like that one. I like it's just going to be two hours and 45 minutes of her performing the greatest love of all. <laughs> all right. But anyway, um, thanks to all the Garys who are participating. There's a ton of you. We are by far the biggest sub league in the, and that does not mean that we are a league of subs. I'm just saying we are the, by far the biggest mini league within the Vulture Movie Fantasy League. So, uh, Gary's out there, be proud. And, uh, we are showing up huge. So cannot thank you guys enough for that. That's pretty awesome. Um, anything else to say before we head on back to spooky payment? Woo. Team name, the Julia Ormond incident. I see you. <laughs> Fuck you. I love I you. I love you. I love How that. How dare you. Oh, my God. That's perfect. Are you kidding me? That's absolutely perfect. We'll shout out some best. more. Thank you for making that your team name. We'll shout out some more names as the season goes on. This will be very fun. <laughs> the Julia Ormond incident. All right. Have fun with Hereditary, kiddos. We'll see you next week. Okay, we got to do the plot description because, like, we're we're, we're we're a good half hour into this episode. And we're just, like, picking apart this whole movie at some point. Was, this is going to be a wild one, you guys. Just, just FYI. <laughs> um, all right. I've got my stopwatch out. Chris, are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of Joe the movie Hereditary? Joe is going to rain gold coins down <laughs> on me, uh, while I stumble through a plot description of this movie. <laughs> I, who am not a linear thinker, and this movie doesn't... <laughs> really doesn't encourage that linear thought um this is going to be interesting all right we're going to be talking about the 2018 film hereditary written and directed by ari aster starring tony collette alex wolf gabriel byrne and dowd millie shapiro a bunch of naked people it premiered world premiered on january 21st 2018 at the sundance film festival it played south by southwest subsequent to that and then opened in wide release on june 8th 2018 finished i believe it was in third place on the same weekend that oceans eight 
opened. Um, but it ended up like doing pretty well for, especially for, it was like, it's, it either still is or was for a while A24's top box office. Uh, it was success. the top one. Um, I forget if Uncut Gems passed it, but obviously everything Ooh. everywhere passed it. Right. Yeah. Everything everywhere surpassed pretty much everything. All right, Chris, I've got my stopwatch out. 60 seconds to recap the plot of Hereditary. Are you ready? Sure. And go. All right, so uh, we open on the movie and we learn that the matriarch of a family has died. Her daughter Annie has a nuclear unit at home. Her husband is Gabriel Burns. She has her uh, typical son, Peter, who has a crush on a girl. And then uh, Charlie, the daughter who's uh, awkward, a loner, etc. She does like taxidermy art. It's really weird. Anyway, uh, she eventually forces Peter to take Charlie to a party and she has an allergic reaction and uh, in the to get her to a hospital. Uh, she is uh, decapitated by a pole as she has her head out the window. This uh, creates a major schism in the family when it uh, already was because of the death of the grandmother. Annie's been going to these like group therapy things and then she meets Ann Dowd and is like, Ann Dowd's like, I'm grieving too. Come seconds. over. We're going to have a seance. She has a seance and it's actually working and she like gets her son to show up and then uh, Annie's been freaking out and then she's like, oh, I know how we're going to bring Charlie back. We're going to talk to her in a seance. And then a bunch of crazy shit starts happening, including nightmares for the whole family. Um, more and more signs happen that Peter is kind of being possessed. Annie thinks that she can stop all of this. Meanwhile, uh, 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 the like possession keeps taking hold. Uh, Gabriel Byrne goes on fire. And then she seemingly wants to t attack and kill her son, Peter. They go into the attic and she is there. They're uh, dismembering herself, and then uh, he escapes, but then goes into the uh, the family treehouse, and his body is now taken over by the demon god Payman. The end, Hail Payman. Forty-five seconds over uh, the allotted minute. I knew you were... Uh, you could get into the particulars of all of the nightmarish things that happen, but really it's just an increasing possession coming charlie was still alive at the 32nd mark of your uh of your you summary so i was table like setting table setting support when when you got into the girl that peter had a crush on i'm like oh he's done for this is this <laughs> this is doomed um okay but okay so even in your not to be like i'm not what actually happened we know this it's fine so peter gets possessed because he jumps out of the attic window and maybe either like dies or like is unconscious for long enough for payment to like, you see it, you see it almost in like a weird little like Tinkerbell effect where that, like that sort of white laser light concentrates, comes over him and just sort of has this like glowy orb that like settles into him. And it's like, Oh, okay. Uh, Peter's the laser gone. Light is yeah, Peter's gone, Payman's there, and then from the moment he like gets up and ascends into the clubhouse, he's Payman. The other thing that I learned from reading sort of like supplemental like interviews and whatever, which like makes sense and it's not something I didn't believe was true, but like I didn't really think about it this way, is that like Charlie apparently has been Payman since like birth. That like there's never really been a Charlie. Charlie's been like inhabited by Payman her entire life. That's why... Well, when that Peter is Payman, they say that they've corrected his female body. Yes. 
And the grandmother even told Charlie, and the grandmother was close to Charlie. Right. Charlie was hers. She wished that Charlie was a boy. Right. So, like, Charlie was supposed to be Payman. So, no, Peter, so here's my best, my best, uh, from the POV of, what's her name? Lee? The mother, the Ellen Lee, Queen Lee, sure. um, her. So, Ellen, Queen of Coins. Queen of, our Queen of Coins. She was part of this cult from before the time she had children. She has a son and a daughter. She worships Payman. Payman, a very gender essentialist uh, king of hell, we should say, um, only wants a male host because, uh, Whatever, boys rule and girls drool. Because so, this takes place in the suburbs. It doesn't take place <laughs> in the suburbs. The it takes place in the dollhouse suburbs. <laughs> so uh, Lee tries to, like, essentially, like, prep her son for inhabitation by payment. Annie later or in the movie describes this as. Her brother was schizophrenic, and he killed himself, and in his suicide note, he blamed his mother for trying to put people in him, put things in him. Yes. Um, and so then we we can sort of interpret that, like, oh, she was trying to inhabit him with payment. So that didn't work. Payment didn't want to be a girl, so payment didn't uh, – uh, so Lee didn't try to inhabit Annie with payment. Annie has Peter – Annie has this very fraught relationship with her mother. Gabriel Byrne is like, no, I'm putting my foot down. Your mother is not allowed near Peter. So with the mother not allowed near Peter, she wasn't able to, like, work her little tricks or whatever on Peter. And then when Annie has Charlie, that's when she relents and lets her mother back into her life. And her mother essentially, like, takes over (laughs) the raising of Charlie. And by that point, the cult is like, we're not getting any younger here. We we haven't gotten these wealthy coin deposits that Payman's going to give us if we don't uh, make something happen. So they're like, we'll just let Payman inhabit Charlie. And so Payman somewhat, I imagine, reluctantly <laughs> inhabits Charlie. That's why Charlie's such a weirdo. That's why Charlie's decapitating birds and sewing bird heads onto other things. That's why she's always clucking. The clucking is like a, you know, a sim- uh, whatever, a receptor. And so finally, the coven is like, Payman's not happy with us. We're not getting wealthy. We're not, you know, getting good familiars or whatever the th- thing that Ann Dowd says at the end. So let's give Payman the kind of host that he wants. We want this to be a boy. Let's engineer this death of this child, which you can tell by like the sigil on the t- telephone pole, which is like visible as you pass by the telephone pole that like they engineer essentially Charlie getting beheaded, which is like, Pause for a second and just like I'm not quite sure that's a that's a chain of events that happened real specifically between like they put the nuts in the brownie recipe. Well, but it's it wasn't the nuts; it was the teen chopping the nuts and then cutting the cake with the same knife that they chopped the nuts. Like that's how. So like it's an intricate whatever, but like we'll yes. give the coven credit. They got so like they got Charlie dead, and then Payman is out on the lamb and like laser lighting around all the place, and finally. Uh, can only inhabit this, the host when the host is essentially, like, debilitated or, like, depleted in some way. And so they, like, run Peter around ragged long enough to, like, have him in- inhabited by payment. The end. I, is, I think, how all, that goes. I love that you brought 
the same energy to explaining all of the background of what is happening in this movie that you do explaining the career of an actress. Or I was going to say a soap opera storyline, too. Or a soap opera storyline, or, uh, you know, the awards trajectory of a director's career. Listen, Um, Payman deserves to have his story told. All this to be said, I know that there are some listeners that just heard all of that and their minds are blown. Just because I've had enough conversations about this movie that people don't even understand that the grandmother was in a coven. Sure. All what I understand that it frustrates people that all of this information is obscured, but hiding in plain sight. It is hiding in plain sight. You can get it. Like, you just have to sit with it for a while. You know what I mean? You have to be an intensely... uh, You have to, A, be on the movie's wavelength. Yeah. And you have to kind of submit to it, in a way. But you also have to be a very attentive viewer. And I think your attentiveness to this movie depends on how much you enjoy what it's doing. But also, you can enjoy this movie without knowing all of those intricate details, right? You can enjoy this movie knowing just like, oh, the the grandmother was into some weird occult shit. Um, There's a demon. through it. There's Gabriel a demon that, is like that, a therapist. Right. There's a there's some kind of a demon that wants in on this family. And ultimately, like, and Anne Dowd like kind of does lay it out by then. She's like, hey, you're payment. She calls him Charlie, by the way, at the end, which I think is like very interesting. Um, she's like, You're payment, you're the king of hell, you're gonna give us wealth and good familiars. Uh everyone here is naked but me. I love that Anne Dowd is like, fellas. No, Ari. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm an Emmy winner. I'm not doing that. Let's talk uh, for a minute about Ann Dowd in this. Let's. Ann Dowd is so okay. In a 2018 world, yes. Ann Dowd is so perfectly cast in this movie. Yes, Ari Aster knew exactly what he was doing putting her yes. in this movie. Yep. And now I am tired of seeing her in these roles. <laughs> oh, interesting. By the time okay. that I got to Exorcist Believer, I was like, this is the laziest Oh, she's casting. an Exorcist Five Believer. Five years later, it's the right. laziest casting decision. Let's look at Ann Dowd's career trajectory. Things that I saw her in, it's, she's absolutely, she's a Margot Martindale in this way, and the two of them are friends, and that makes a ton of sense. But like, we she's absolutely Dowd. one of those people who you go back and like, oh, you're there in Lorenzo's Oil and Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And um, Garden State, I actually do remember her. She's... Um, uh, Natalie Portman's mom, I believe, in Garden State. Um, she's in The Forgotten. She's in uh, The Manchurian Candidate, right? Yada, yada, yada. All up until... She's in The Informant. All up until Compliance in 2012, which is when all of us, um, you know, awards freaks are made aware of her. And this is not even getting into, like, the eight bajillion different Law and Orderses and x Five. Like, her television filmography is kind of amazing because it's every, like, prestige procedural you've ever heard of. Like, Law and Order multiple times, Chicago Hope, Providence, The X-Files, Judging Amy, NYPD Blue, Freaks and Geeks, uh, ER? Third Watch, was she on ER? Touched by an Angel. How was she not on ER is what I'm asking myself. She wasn't ever on ER as far as I can tell from this list, which is kind of amazing. The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd. Um, 
the division, the education of Max Bickford only aired like four episodes and she's on three of them. Like that's kind of amazing. <laughs> um, house, of course, she's, a, she's plays a mother superior on house. How many different roles of these were nuns? Wait a second. She's a nun on that. She's she was a nun. A nun. Exorcist believer. Is she really? She was a nun yes. on Louis. Um, she's a doctor in some of these. She's credited as a nurse in some of these, but she's like consummate. Like she's a, it's the Octavia Spencer story, right? You know what I mean? It's the Margot Martindale story. So anyway, compliance happens. we got to do at this point. We really do. Her character is, she's a manager at a, uh, uh, fast food place, right? Yes. And she gets a call from these essentially like awful pranksters who are trying to see how far they can push I mean, pretending like, to be like investigators or something. Right. And trying to see yeah. how much they can get her to essentially like abuse this employee of theirs. Um she's incredible in it. She mounts her own uh campaign for best supporting actress because Magnolia Pictures doesn't have the money to do it themselves. Um would love to see how close she got to a nomination in 2012 mm-hmm. for supporting actress. But that like ups her profile enough that like then subsequent to that she's getting bigger roles she gets cast in the leftovers as patty levin who you know that's a you know now we're all of a sudden we're getting into like the Anne dowd role right she's yes. a cult she's a cult leader ish on the leftovers she is a uh like evil functionary of the fascist regime on the handmaid's tale. She wins an Emmy. She thanks Hulu. They're wonderful people there. What's the line at Hulu. They do such wonderful work at Hulu. Um, uh, yeah, that's right. She says it like you who it's Hulu. Yeah. She says Hulu like that. She's like, she's singing it. Um, treasure. Then uh, what other roles are sort of like that? Hereditary is another big one. Collateral beauty. She's sort of like, collateral beauty she's like the paid investigator in collateral beauty he gets like run around town we can't Uh, we'll do it sooner or later um but yeah you're right she's um this does feel like more and more like the the and out role where it's like more sinister than she seems. She sort of comes across as the like oh you think she's this mild mannered just like uh uh middle to late aged woman. But like by this point, nobody's fooled by that because it's Anne Dowd and immediately you see her and you're like alarm bells go off and it's just like, watch out. Well, and she's not, she's not evil in, uh, exorcist, but like, I guess to be clear about what my frustration is. Yeah. It does feel like she's getting more and more typecast, Mm -hmm. but as that typecast is taking root, it feels like she's more and more boxed in and asked to be this like mm-hmm. kindly soft spoken thoughtful looking yeah. at you with my chin slightly up so I you watched out. you watched the leftovers right no i should i should think you would love the leftovers i think i would love the leftovers i just never her character it. in that is interesting because like she gets to be she's like really I, i've seen the gifs She's savage. Well, like for the first whole season, she doesn't speak, of course, because none of the guilty remnants speak. Right. Um, and then she's her her character 
without spoiling anything, sort of like takes a turn. Uh, and she's incredibly vocal <laughs> in that second season. And so, yeah, you've seen the, we're all going to fucking die. Like Let's go thing. fucking die. Let's go fucking die. Um, it's see, this is just great. what I want. I just want her, I want to see her as often as we already do, yeah. but given more variety. Give her I more agree. variety. I agree. I do think she's incredible, though, in Hereditary. She's so um, funny. She's so she's fucking so funny. funny. Like so unexpectedly funny. The the seance scene is so funny. The degree to which Tony Collette is losing her shit, and it's just like a warm, fuzzy, happy moment for Anne Dowd. Well, and she, and it's like it's it's that it's that exactly. It's it's Anne Dowd being like, well, and first of all, how much of this? I mean, I guess it's real or it's like whatever. It's like payment, like helping her play a trick or whatever. But however she's playing it, she's like, my darling grandson, can you write something for me? You're, that's, you did such a good job. And Isn't meanwhile, wonderful? Tony Collette has this like rictus, like uh, mask of death on her face, <laughs> just being like, Ugh. and then Tony Collette's finally, Tony Collette is finally just like, we need to stop. And Ann Dow just goes, what? Like that. She's just like, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? We're not stopping. It's so funny. Um, maybe the first scene of the movie. Well, no, I mean, there's Charlie's death, which requires Tony Collette uh, to wail on screen for five minutes. I that, really hope that she, uh, you know, has the way that of- whole thing is depicted, because first of all, I, the trailer for this, I only ever watched after, um, I saw the movie. I remember Same. I literally, people talk about this. I literally did it. I remember walking out of a theater one time when they started to play the hereditary trailer and like waited two minutes and then went back in so that I wouldn't <laughs> see the hereditary trailer. I was I that. I just looked away because I knew there wasn't like dialogue heavy stuff. The Sundance reactions were like, try to go in knowing as little as possible. But then they were like, now here's all my thoughts on Hereditary. And I was like, no, I don't want to. And I really, really, really wanted to try as much as possible to know very, very little going in. The TV spots were kind of unavoidable. And from the TV spots, I sort of got the impression, and I think this was the intent, that like something's wrong about Charlie, which by the way is correct. Like the TV spots are being honest. Like Charlie is possessed by the demon, but you expect that like, it's going to be this sort of like, you know, uh, the omen style, whatever, like evil child, something's up with this kid. And so the death of Charlie as early in this movie as it comes is a genuine shock. But that whole way that it's filmed from the second they're in the car where she's like clawing at her throat and like writhing and whatever, and she's choking to death and you're scared for her. And you're scared for Peter because it's going to be, you know, it's going to be Peter's fault. Peter was just getting high. He went to this party and then like left his sister downstairs because she was too much of a hassle. And you know, like you've already established that like his mother is a pitiless woman who will absolutely like never forgive him if something happens. So you're afraid for him for that. And then she sticks her head out the window and you're like, you're so nervous. You still don't think they're going to kill her, but you're just like, Oh my God. Oh my God. This is so, this is so tense. This is so tense. And then he swerves. And then the shot of it where you do like, I've never 
when my friend and I uh, were younger, the one Halloween, you know that like the first Halloween where you're too old to trick or treat. So instead you decide to watch scary movies and like, we went and saw scary movies. We sent his sister out to go get candy for us to like get extra like trick or treat candy to bring it back for us. But we wouldn't go out trick or treating because we were too old and mature for that. So instead too we cool. stayed in. Oh, too and mature. Watched... Too mature. You weren't too cool. You were too immature. We were trying to be too cool, but we were not cool. <laughs> um, we watched Misery. And so one of the things you do when you're a teenager to combat being legitimately scared in a thing is you either laugh at a scary movie or you like deconstruct it. And I remember like we slow-mo replayed the part where she hobbles him in misery. Oh yeah. Where you can watch the, like the foot go uh, to the, (laughs) to the side. And we also slow-mo replayed the part where she, uh, shotgun blasts Richard Farnsworth to death. We're like from behind and you see the like, the like explosion of his chest out through. So we like, we slow-mo replayed that. We also slow-mo replayed the decapitation, the David Warner decapitation in the Omen. Um, oh, where the pain when his of head is just like laterally spinning. Yeah. yeah. So I remember doing both of those. I haven't done that with hereditary because I'm now an adult and like, I can just surrender myself to being scared by a thing without having to like slow-mo replay it. But I imagine the slow-mo replay of Charlie getting decapitated in hereditary is fucking wild as shit. Cause like he cuts away just too late for you to not know exactly what happened. And, and then you're just there on Peter's face and it's horrifying and it's sad and you're so scared for him and you're so heartbroken for him and you're just like and then he drives away and you're just like no 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 like don't do that it's so much worse if you do that and then he goes home and then he goes to bed and then that shot of him in the morning where you're fixed on his face and you hear Annie being like i'm going to go out and like whatever and you know what's coming and the waiting to hear her react to it and not not sure whether they're going to cut to her, like cut to the garage or whether, and he just keeps it on Peter's face and you hear her screaming. And it's so, it and like it goes continuously. And then you get to the really shot of her shots. later on that day where she's just like, has been screaming, crying all day and saying, I don't want to live. I just want to die. Um, it crawls through your body. Like the actual physical reaction of it is really, really something else. And that's filmmaking. That's acting. That's, you know, design cinematography. It's an incredible, incredible sequence. So at that point, then Annie's off the reservation and Peter is traumatized and poor Gabriel Byrne is trying in vain poor to hold Gabriel together. Poor Gabriel Byrne is doing his Gabriel Byrne things. Stop it. Just like yelling at them both at all times to just like stop saying the most awful things to each other. Um, and like he's so irrelevant to what's happening. So like I irrelevant. saw some people uh, at the time complaining that like what is this character? What does he have to do? It's a, That's the it's point. It's purposeful that he's irrelevant to what's happening and he has no effect. to the movie. He can't do anything. Because he's also not a biological member of the family, mm-hmm. which, like, is a thing. In it's these, all about bloodlines, like, yes. In these, like, uh, archaic, you must have children, you must uh, bring descendants upon the family, that it's yeah. just like, well, you matter less because you're not 
of the family if right. you marry into it. Like that is right. a thing in suburban culture that is awful. Um, and I love you returning to this point again and again. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, this is my brain when I watch this movie. <laughs> but like, so then we start to get to the whole like Annie's. And the other thing is now you're just sort of, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop as is Peter. So we are kind of at this point, we see Annie more, but I think emotionally we are never not with Peter for the rest of the movie because we were with him at this like most horrific moment of his life. Yeah. So like at all times we are waiting for her to blow up at him as is he. And that's what gives us this dinner table moment where they're all like eating in silence and everything he does or like the small talk he tries to like make or whatever. She's sort of reacting in this just like, Oh, huh. like, I guess. This, this like, is one thing I was really struck on this rewatch that the time between Charlie's death and this dinner scene is not as long as you think it is. It's just yeah. that the the time between those uh, scenes are so it feels so yes. arduous and painful and, and walking on eggshells and terrifying. And so as this scene goes on, she's reacting again so childishly. To literally everything he says, she's got some sort of reaction. And finally, it's almost as if the roles are reversed, sort of. Except Peter's never not also a child. But he's just like, he's essentially just like, do you have something to say? And she's <laughs> like, no. Why would I have anything to say? I don't have anything to say. And he's like, because it sounds like you have something to say. And she's like, would you like me to say something? And she's and finally, he says the most honest thing, which is just like, she's like, or do you want me? She's essentially just like, do you want uh, he's like, she's like, why don't you like unburden yourself? And she's, you know, like, do you want me to unburden you essentially? And he's like, yeah, finally, whatever you want to say, just say it. This like waiting for you to like, you know, essentially blow up at me is the worst possible thing. Just say it. And then she, he finally is just like, just fucking say it. And that gives her the excuse to just be like, don't you ever swear at me, you little shit. And, uh, you killed your sister and I can't, and she tries to like wrap it up in this, like, I know you're hurting and I know this is bad and I understand, but also you killed your sister and I, there's nothing I can do to make you feel better about that. And I wish I could, but you did what you did and you haven't ever taken responsibility for it, which like, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Just like, and yet also she's also not entirely wrong where it's like, he just sort of drove home and left her body. And it's a trauma response. But, like, he drove home with her body in the car and left her to be discovered by them. So it's just like... To be devoured by ants. Well, also that... Well, that's the other thing. There's also the lion's roar of this whole monologue of where she... The, like, the most histrionic thing she says is that, like, nobody admits to what Nobody ever done. takes... Yeah, nobody and ever... Takes responsibility so, for what they've done. Something along yeah. those lines. And it's yes. all... Like it feels, you know, that this is the this is the peak of this monologue. Mm-hmm. It's everything she's unloading into him is also her unloading the position that she is yes. in in this family, the position she was put in by her mother, her mother, right, and what is expected of her mm-hmm. as a woman in a family unit, right, right, um. 
And then, so like, not to like, I know we don't normally go like chronologically through a plot, but I think there's so much that happens in this movie. It goes on, like she goes to the support group, she meets Joan, Joan like ingratiates herself into her life. You can also see Anne Dowd in the earlier scene with her back to the camera, I think. And the at the wake? At the funeral or whatever? No, in the first time that she goes to the support group. Oh, she yes. has the monologue all about her mother and uh-huh. brother, etc. I'm always looking and for her. I think, there. <laughs> I think she's the one who approaches the casket, who, like, touches the dead body's hands in the casket. We don't really see who does that, but I, I think that's Joan. I think that's supposed to be Joan. Uh, let's go, Joan. Um, that was originally about Anne Dowd's character in uh in hereditary that was lala Ree singing let's go joan um now that's gonna be in my head for the rest of this time anyway um so you also see the part i love like this is a very rewarding movie for like easter eggs i guess is what you would call them but like um the part i know but like you know it's the easiest way for me to communicate what it is the part where like you see somebody put a flyer in the mail slot of the of the house where it's like, go see a medium or whatever. (laughs) And these like early attempts to just like get Annie to like, but that also feeds into the plot, right? It was like, they tried to get her to like, go see a medium of her own accord. And when that didn't work, they sent Ann Dowd to like run into her in the parking lot of the Costco or whatever. And, um, to be like, I know what you're going through. I've been there myself. Let's be friends. Annie like fucking flips out by that point. And is like, Comes uh, comes home, sets up this little, like, seance test, is acting absolutely bananas with her husband and her son. Is like, I know, you just gotta trust me, we're gonna do this, you gotta, we, uh, there's no time to explain, and, like, she's acting and absolutely insane. And art galleries insane. hounding her, being fake uh, supportive of her grief, uh-huh. and being like, but yeah, so, uh, when you're gonna do this show, we would love to know. We'd love to see how far you've progressed or whatever she's doing weird passive aggressive dioramas like the crime scene from charlie's death um she scares the shit out of peter when she does the seance and she becomes momentarily possessed by charlie who is payman Um, she and peter's nightmares are kind of infecting each other we in the audience have uh these like sequences where we might be seeing one of their nightmares and then it becomes the other person's nightmare Uh Uh-huh. There's the part where she within nightmares. She follows the trail of ants to his room and he, she sees his face covered entirely with ants. The biggest scare in the movie beyond like the scare of seeing Tony Collette in the corner, corner of the room. ceiling isn't quite a jump scare because first of all there's no music cue for it, but also it's like it, the scene allows you to find her at your own pace. The, the biggest what's like, scary about the scene is realizing that she's been there the whole time that she's been there the whole time and then all of a sudden she can levitate like that's a new one yeah and (laughs) but the part where um peter is having the nightmare and he thinks he sees charlie in the corner and then the hand comes from the window and like grabs his face and like watching that a second time 
and knowing that that was probably just like a cult member, like reaching through the window and trying to grab his face and like trying, because like they're constantly trying to like get him possessed. It's yeah. not just that they were like waiting for this moment for when it happens. They've been trying to get him possessed the whole time. So like Joan, like yelling these incantations at him from across <laughs> the street of his high school, where she's literally trying to expel the Peter of him from his body so that payment can inhabit him. But like, the part where the hand grabs him is just like one of the cult members from outside his window because they're constantly outside that house. Yeah. Just like grabbing his face and trying to like subdue him is so fucking scary. And it's scarier had, the second time. I had a pick earlier for what I thought the scariest image in the movie was besides Tony Collette on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, the scariest one to me is, and I think it's even in the trailer, is when she's on the, it's a, the, end of the movie when she's like banging her head on the attic door repeatedly bang 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 so fucking because once again we have violated the laws of gravity where she is just like absolutely upside down and can like cling to the ceiling and then be able to possess the force and speed with which to bang her head on this on the ceiling as much as she is it's so terrifying it's absolutely terrifying um we need to transition at the hour mark of this thing into the Oscar conversation, uh, the awards conversation. My question to you to kick this off is sort of in a couple different parts. One of which is for as much as Tony Collette showed up through the precursor season, and we'll talk about she got a Critics' Choice nomination, she won the Gotham Award, she was nominated for the Independent Spirit. One of the, oh, I forgot to, I was going to email you about this earlier and I totally forgot that I wanted us to take on the, uh, the, uh, task of trying to rank what we think the votes were one to 10 in the actress race this year. Oh, in okay. Hold on. Let me pull up my spreadsheet. Oh yeah. Why don't you talk, talk, give the Patreon spiel while I jot these things down. Listen, listeners, uh, first of all, happy Halloween. What tricks are we putting in uh, your little plastic pumpkin-headed basket? Uh, Go over to the Patreon and find out. For $5 a month, you're going to get two bonus episodes, first of which we like to call exceptions. Those happen on the first of the month. So in a few days, or maybe even today, if you're listening to this episode a few days after it's dropped, we've got episodes, movies that fit the This Had Oscar Buzz rubric, uh, but actually ended up getting Oscar nominations. We kicked it off with the motion picture 9, Rob Marshall's 9. We've got things like Pleasantville. Lovely Bones, which was selected by all of our patrons as our first listener's choice over on the Patreon. And in a few days, we're going to have our first ever guest on the Patreon. And who else should that person be but Katie Rich? We'll be talking about Baz Luhrmann's Australia. And then the second episode that we have every month, they drop on the 15th. We call those excursions. It's kind of deep dives into things we obsess about here on This Had Oscar Buzz. We'll talk about EW movie preview issues. We'll recap old award shows. We do like the aforementioned mailbag episode. Uh, We also have episodes of my experience going to Magic Mike Live. Spoiler alert, the night of my life. Uh, the We do actress roundtables. We have a great one up about the 2016 actress roundtable. Check us out. This at Oscar Buzz, Turbulent Brilliance, over at patreon.com slash this had Oscar 
buzz. Okay, good timing. Um, I have jotted down 15 names from the prececursor, um, although I haven't checked BAFTA. But what was BAFTA that year? Do you have BAFTA that, that year? Okay, Olivia then. Coleman wins. The other mm-hmm. nominees were Glenn Close for The Wife, Lady Gaga for A Star Is Born, Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Viola Davis for Widows. Okay, so I have sixteen names uh, with Viola Davis for Widows. Okay, so these are people who got either BAFTA, Independent Spirit. I didn't include Michelle Pfeiffer for Where's Kira from Gotham Awards because, like. We can only go so far. Uh, but It's somewhat of a miracle that that movie even got to the Gothams. So Glenn Close, Lady Gaga, Yalitza Aparicio, Olivia Colman, and Melissa McCarthy were all the Oscar nominees. So those are your one through five. Then we have Emily Blunt for Mary Poppins Returns, Regina Hall for Support the Girls, Elsie Fisher for Eighth Grade, Helena Howard for Madeline's Madeline, Carrie Mulligan for Wildlife, Tony Collette for Hereditary, Charlize Theron for Tully, Nicole Kidman for Destroyer, Rosamund Pike for A Private War, Constance Wu for Crazy Rich Asians, and Viola Davis for Widows. These are all the people that got either got Oscar, something. Globe, SAG, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, or Independent Spirit nominations. Right. Of these, I want to fill out who the next five in the Oscar voters tally we think were. Okay. I think we can probably remove Helena Howard. Definitely. For Oscar, yes. Though that is an incredible performance. One of these days, I literally was thinking... As I was watching, I watched the the trailer for Madeline's Madeline after I saw uh, that uh, saw her name in this. I want to watch that movie with you and sort of experience it through your appreciation of it because I didn't get the the fuss, and I would kind of like to get the fuss. Anyway, it's definitely a wavelength movie. If you're not ca- if you're not on the wavelength of the movie, I I yeah. think that's exactly how people will respond to that movie. I think we can throw out Rosamund Pike in a private war. Probably that movie was kind of a non-entity for that season, unfortunately. Do you think we can throw out Constance Wu for Crazy Rich Asians? Maybe not for a 10. I don't know. That movie was interesting. Well, we'll see. We'll see. What do you think Charlize Theron for Tully? Throw her out or no? Maybe. Okay, so we're already at the point. I'm thinking of people who maybe never showed up on that list, like Joanna Kulig for Cold War. Oh, who you think might have been top 10? Maybe. I mean, maybe she would be something like 10th, but I don't think she's someone we could rule out. Okay, so I'll lay out the case for for each of them. Emily Blunt got a SAG nomination, a not a BAFTA, because the BAFTAs have very complicated feelings, I think, about Mary Poppins <laughs> historically <laughs> and in general. I think the Brits have this like love-hate relationship with that. Um, Regina Hall got the New York Film Critics Circle Prize. Elsie Fisher, eighth grade, is a screenplay nomination at the Oscars. So like, I think that, that makes her somebody to consider. What about Carrie Mulligan for Wildlife? Do we think she was a possible top ten? I would love to think so. She's tremendous in that movie. We've talked about... We haven't done an episode on that movie, but we talked about it. We're both fans. Right. A movie we saw together. Um, IFC is not great at campaigning. But, I mean, at that point, she's already an Oscar nominee. I wouldn't rule her out. Okay. I think it's probably at this point easier to go 6th through 10th. 
Yeah, um, that's what I'm. Well, that's why I'm just sort of like I'm going through all these people and like we're trying to figure out who the six through ten is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I just like I think there are cases. That's why I'm trying to like eliminate some so that we we come down to like a you know we can have some sort of order easy debate on this. Nicole Kidman and Destroyer is Nicole Kidman. And I think for a while there, the buzz was there for her. So I don't know how much it faded by the time the Oscar voters voted. Viola Davis for Widows, who like the BAFTA nomination probably says something. Yeah. I think if you're a BAFTA nominee, I think you are probably somewhere in the six through 10. Does Viola Davis have more BAFTA nominations than Oscar nominations? She's got what? Four Oscar nominations? Does she have four? Doubt, Fences, The Help, Ma Rainey. Four Oscar nominations. She has four BAFTA nominations, but for different movies. She was not BAFTA nominated for Ma Rainey or Doubt. Interesting. So it's what, Widows and... Woman King. Viola Davis, My Woman King. King. Right. That's right. Of course. Of course. How could I forget? Okay. So I feel like I... I think I have a sense of who I think <clears throat> the six through ten were, and you can maybe come up with your own. Mine, I think, were if I were to pick five more to fill out that top ten, I would say Emily Blunt for Mary Poppins Returns, Viola Davis for Widows, um, Elsie Fisher for Eighth Grade, Tony Collette for Hereditary, and Nicole Kidman for Destroyer, in some order. Oh, okay. So maybe I, not exactly in that order, but I think those five are probably your six through ten. Emily Blunt is sixth. Okay, for sure. I think so. Um, Viola Davis is seventh. Okay, eighth is Nicole Kidman. You think so? Yes. All right. This is when it gets tricky. I feel like ninth is. Well, I guess ninth and 10th, I would be willing to believe Carrie Mulligan and Elsie Fisher, I guess. So you don't think Tony Collette was in the top 10? I don't. Okay. I don't. The The amount of campaigning that A24 did for this movie, they did like events. They did a lot. Such For this movie, not late in the season when campaigning is like really happening it was maybe i will say and this is maybe being too anecdotal but like i got invited to a campaign event and i never get invited to campaign events so i feel like that at least gives a sense that like they were really they were really trying for her and this was like early december maybe november like it was like into award season this wasn't like the spring summer so they were definitely trying with her um, I also just don't know who I would like, I guess Carrie Mulligan, I could see finishing around there. I also could maybe see Regina Hall, but like, I don't think the Academy watched that movie though. Which She's movie? She's amazing. I'm so happy she won New York Critics, but. Oh, support the girls? Support well, the girls. Sure. But I also don't necessarily think I could see them seeing Destroyer. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think my main point is, beyond the fact that like this is a rich year for Best Actress, yeah. I think 2018 
is a very underrated movie year. When we talk about like the great movie years or whatever, yeah. I maybe think we need to start talking about 2018. And I think because Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody dominated the Oscar conversation late, that we want to sort of write off that year. But in terms of well, like... This, this is the historical thing, is a lot of great movie years are bad Oscar years. This is what I'm saying. So like, I, I, I also wonder... think we talk a lot about 2019 as being a great year that it kind of overshadows because parasite wins but that's the thing is i think if you look at like the aggregate uh strength of the full field i think 2018 beats 2019 and 2018 is like there's some real for real bangers in that year i think that that is and i wonder if the fact that the pandemic happened only 2 years after that has like truncated our ability to you know, look back on those few years pre-pandemic and evaluate them. But like, mm-hmm. I'm going to maybe start the project of let's start talking about 2018 the way we talk about 2007 or maybe like 1999 is going to have its own little sort of place. But I think 2007, 2001, you know what I mean? Those like mm-hmm. really good recent movie years, I think... Maybe I think it just gets overshadowed by 2017 and 2019 being so good. Um, another person we didn't mention in this potential lineup is also Catherine Hahn for Private Life. Oh, who I don't think would have made the top 10, but you're right. She deserves probably place not because she didn't. That's even get probably why spirit. we were talking about this the actress race. That's would have been a recent. That's yeah. probably why you remember us talking about this. But anyway, um, I just think it's notable that, and none of the the precursor awards that Tony Collette was getting nominated for had any kind of overlap with Oscar voters, right? They were all like Critics' Choice, Independent Spirit, Gotham Awards. Yeah. But I think the fact that she's showing up to them, by the way, Glenn Close is in all of those lineups, which is like, sucks. You know what I mean? Like that she was like, what the fuck does Glenn Close need to have? And I know The Wife was an independent movie, but like, why does Glenn Close need to show up on the Independent Spirit Awards list or the Gotham Awards list? Like, everybody was trying to get her a win. But nobody everybody liked that tried. movie. Nobody liked that movie. Like, nominating somebody for a movie you don't like is something for Oscar voters to do this or for is Golden maybe Globe something voters I said to do. Quite a bit in the year two of our Lord. Uh, in the year of our payment, twenty eight. Do you regard? Do you recall me saying otherwise? No, I remember. I okay. remember me just being very um, mean and emphatic. You were very mean and emphatic, and and that's fine. I just think when it comes to, I think my my grand theory about award season is that every award needs to behave like itself and stop trying to be other things. And I think that's my thing where what, that's why I hate the critics choice so much is that by the way, the critics choice in 2018 nominated seven people and gave out two winners. That is a craven organization (laughs) that has no sense of pride and no sense of its own self, right? The critics choice want to be the Oscars so bad. And that's why I have no respect for them. But like the Gotham awards, as annoying as I find the Gotham awards, they are their own thing and they have their own identity the independent spirit awards for as much as we are like annoyed by them have an ideal for themselves that they don't always live up to but they at least have that ideal for themselves the baftas used to have more of an identity and now they are kind of a little bit more beholden to the oscars this is why i have never 
hated the Golden Globes as much as other people hate the Golden Globes because, because they're their own freak show. They're their own freak show. And they yeah. will and like and in recent years, they're even more of a freak show than they were. They are less beholden to the Oscars than they've ever been. The Aaron and Taylor Johnsons, the Totally. You're Rosamond Pike for I care a lot for you know what I mean? Like all that sort of weird <laughs> shit. This is this is my thing is I need award season to be as heterogeneous as possible. And when the Independent Spirit Awards and when the Gotham Awards start nominating Glenn Close for the wife, even though it like letter of the law fits underneath their rubric, it annoys me, especially because their other nominations are exactly what they should be doing with Helena Howard and Regina Hall and Elsie Fisher. You know what I mean? Like those yeah. are the nominations that you should be. Michelle Pfeiffer for Where's Kira is a bug nuts nomination because not a single human <laughs> being saw that movie. I saw that and movie yet... in a theater. How dare you? <laughs> is it good? Was it good? I liked it. Okay. I can I can see why it I'm it was glad a tough it got sell. nominated. We're gonna be talking about in a little bit, although I don't know when the you guys will probably not be listening to it for a while, but when we do our Patreon episode on the nineteen ninety-six MTV Movie Awards, that's what I'm talking about. Is the MTV Movie right. Awards used to have a very strong identity for themselves. And and you do, am I sounding like a crazy person, sort of like no, ranting no, at a cloud, no, or do you understand no, no, what I'm no, saying? No, no, no. Do you understand what I'm saying? No. And also, I think part of the idea of precursors chasing the Oscars, essentially, or not chase, that's not the right word. Precursors trying to predict the Oscars, mm-hmm. essentially, in mm-hmm. what they're voting for, mm-hmm. it also gets into the thing of like the season gets boring. It gets predictable. It, yes. You know, because I think we even had a question that we didn't get to on the mailbag that was like, why do precursors all win the Os- uh, All end up being the Oscar winner? Well, it's because these awards bodies think, well, this person's getting an Oscar, so we should vote for them to well, and look it's, more it's, serious or something. Rather it's than- also... It's psychological. It's groupthink. It's like it's it's things that are maybe not even always happening on a conscious level, but like I think on a conscious level, it's maybe up to these people to like push back against that more than they do. Right. Right. To yeah, go down the path. You, but also you do have to think some of these groups are large awards bodies and. It can oh, yeah. be hard to yes. create consensus. Laws of large numbers definitely play in more than we more than we admit, and we should probably say that. That like in larger and larger groups, you are going to have results that are less and less interesting yeah. because you're just going to sort of like revert to the middle. And that's and like the way Tony it goes. Collette in Hereditary is a perfect example of a performance that is hard to gather consensus around. As much as it may mm-hmm. seem not to be the case with gay men on the internet. <laughs> it what is, are you saying? It's an extreme performance in an extreme movie. Yeah. That is going but to here's put the a thing. lot of people off. Here's the thing that I like about it though is that in this context, is it's not pandering. There are some times when, like, gay people on Twitter, and I know I understand that, like, I am too often responding to that and and pushing back <laughs> against that when it's not really a thing. But this is our community, and we can exist in that milieu if we want to. It's too often that the, re- that the performances that get responded to there feel, if not consciously pandering... 
unconsciously pandering to that sensibility, right? And I don't think there is anything about either Hereditary or Tony Collette's performance in Hereditary that feel like they are pandering to that sensibility at all. I feel like it's pandering to nothing but Ari Aster's sensibility. I think Lady Gaga and House of about so far. Like Lady Gaga and House of Gucci is absolutely pandering to that sensibility. Sometimes you do that so well that I have no choice but to give it up, and that's exactly where I am with Lady Gaga in Well, actually, no, I have complicated feelings about Lady Gaga and House of Gucci. We can't get into it. We'll do that in a, a Patreon episode at some point. In soon. an exception. Um but do you know what I mean, though, about, like, that there are certain times where just like, well, of course you love that. Like, that person essentially, like, gift-wrapped that performance exactly to your, like, you know, little sensibilities. I don't know. I, You know what I mean? Tony Collette is kind of almost a mascot for that kind of taste, though. It's, like, obviously mm-hmm. appreciated actress with a large body of work, but... Very yeah. easy to, you know, uh, describe her in a way that makes her seem like an underdog or an underserved performer, which I all I think is all true. But these are things that we, it, as part of the gay cultural machine, and uh, here's uh, an example I will give system. you: prison system. Uh, we tend to, you know make those like religious figures you know where it's like undervalued greatness laura dern in big little lies is pandering to that sensibility laura dern in marriage story isn't and that's why there was a backlash against laura dern in marriage story where and and part of that a lot of that had to do with jennifer lopez but Do you know what I mean? I think some of that subconsciously probably had to do with the fact that it was a heterosexual male's story, largely, in marriage story. Maybe. But but also, I love both of those performances. Well, I like both of those performances. I much prefer the one in marriage story. But I think there is something to the idea of there is something sort of intentionally over the top in the Big Little Lies performance that she's giving that feels a little pandering to... Especially season two. I think, like, I feel that way a little bit with some a lot of the stuff that Jennifer Coolidge does these days. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, you're pitching this exactly to the audience sure. that's going to, you know, that's going to receive it that way. And, like, you know, work, I guess. But, like, also... I don't know. This is why I don't love Catherine O'Hara in Schitt's Creek. Um, oh, that's... You know what? Honestly, for... As much as I do like Schitt's Creek a lot, and I and I am on the side of defending that show against its backlash, but, like, I don't think you're wrong there. Exactly. Have we done the Tony Collette conversation before? No, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Muriel's Wedding, I think, is the place to start. I know she had been in, like things in Australia before then. But, like, Muriel's Wedding sort of comes comes on, like, a, you know, a shot from across the globe, which is sort of essentially what it was. She kind of takes America by storm with that movie. It's a huge indie sensation. She gets a Golden Globe nomination for it. She gained, like, 40 pounds for the role, but also, like, 
that was the first thing a lot of people saw her in. So like her subsequent roles, or at least like the things she's being offered for sort of like all fit that kind of, um, you know, uh, type that character type. Yes. Um, her role in Emma the next year, uh, she's in clock watchers with Lisa Kudrow and Alana Ubeck and Parker Posey is the fourth one in that. Yeah. Um, the next, the next thing that really like stands out to me on her filmography is she plays Mandy Slade in Velvet Goldmine, Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine, which I can acknowledge that it's probably not Todd Haynes's best work, but it's definitely my favorite. Like it's absolutely the one that I hold deepest in my heart of all. Great Todd movie. The man has never made a bad movie. Every time people make the joke about somebody like inhales on a cigarette and says like I haven't heard that name in twenty years, she's the she's <laughs> she the one I'm thinking dipped? about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah, always yeah. like that's my touchstone for that exact kind of thing. Is she's like her <laughs> in like the corner of this club smoking her cigarette and just being like, I haven't heard. Brian she's Slade's the best performance in the movie. In she's years. immense in that movie. And I think a lot of people give very good performances in that many in that movie. But I absolutely agree. Um, the next year after that, she gets her only Oscar nomination to date, which is kind of amazing. Uh, in the Sixth Sense, I which remember... at the time felt like a surprise nomination, mm-hmm. and like she was riding the coattails of the movie, doing well with Oscar. Yeah. But now the way that people talk about that movie, and like a lot of people are like, "Yes, it's the one scene, the car scene, basically." But like, it's she's it's, great in that whole movie. She's great in the whole movie, but like. If she there are, like, Oscar nominations that happen for one scene, it's, like, sure. one of the best. Because that scene is incredible. Just, I think what she's actually tasked to do and what she actually brings to it as a performer with the type yeah. of choices that she makes that are very Tony Collette choices. Yeah. And how authentic it feels. She's bringing mm-hmm. this real, believable human emotion to these unbelievable circumstances. Yes. It's incredible. So, by the time I had seen The Sixth Sense, I, Sixth Sense, I'd seen it in the theaters. Obviously, I had not seen Velvet Goldmine by this point. I had only ever seen her in Muriel's Wedding and Emma. And so, I remember watching the trailers for The Sixth Sense, and she's in the trailers for it. Absolutely, did not clock her as tony collette from muriel's wedding like she mm-hmm. looks and it's so funny because it's not like she's has this like huge transformation but like the dark hair the fingernails the accent all of this stuff you know she's only like 27 when she makes that movie which is yeah. like insane to think of. she's probably 26 that movie comes out when she's 27 she's probably 26 years old when she makes that which is amazing because like that is not the demeanor or performance of a 26 year old person. You know what I mean? Like that is somebody who has kind of been through it and she's so tremendously good in a, in a very strong best supporting actress field. I think she deserves, she probably deserved to win that year. Um, She follows that up with a kind of divisive performance in Shaft, in the John Singleton Shaft. I need to rewatch that because I definitely saw Mm. that in theaters with my dad and I remember absolutely nothing except for Jeffrey Wright being great. Jeffrey Wright's awesome. I mean, when when is it? I know. Um, Her next major uh, film, she's in 2002. She's in both About a Boy and The Hours. We've talked about her in The Hours enough. Chris, if you've never heard Chris File, 
give his performance <laughs> as Tony Collette playing Kitty in the hours you truly have not lived. Like that is We did this for during, you know, when people were just like doing script readings on Zoom uh during the pandemic, we did that for Joe's birthday. My all of my friends gathered on the same Zoom reading through the hours acting out the different parts was maybe one of the best things that ever happened. <laughs> I remember um, Joe so being good. like now listen, I know that you're going to want something good. I know, I, just I know. Want you to know I, I have a lot of people being really I did cast like, it like a casting thing. So just let me know. like giving me the full sell of like please be amenable. And I was like, <laughs> no, it's fine. I want Tony Collette and I want uh like Mrs. Latch or something. I will say the reviews that came in immediately after were raves upon raves for Chris's uh, kitty and and truly well deserved. It was I'm a, a character actress. What perf- can I say? Truly, um, you know what movie I've never seen still is Japanese Story. It's not. I really good. should. She's oh, okay. good in it. I I've heard great of, things about her performance. She's good, but I do think that the movie is a little ridiculous. Um, okay. <laughs> I understand okay. why some people are taken with it, and partly just because she's great. Yeah. All right. 2004, Connie and Carla. Chris, you have the floor. Modern masterpiece. Um, All right. Listen, Nia Vardalos, I'm sure you're not listening, but if you're listening, thank you for everything you have given us to the culture. Not only your trilogy, but also Connie and Carla. <laughs> your trilogy. Um. um I love Connie and Carla is very funny. I will say worth the watch. If you have not seen Connie and Carla, very funny movie worth the watch. 2005. She makes in her shoes. We've done an episode on it. Go back and listen to our in her shoes episode. She's, she's fantastic. And is somehow my third favorite performance in the movie. Do you know what I mean? Like that she can be that good. And I still like, am even more bowled over by Cameron Diaz and Shirley MacLaine. So like, um, but she's fantastic. The next year she's in little miss sunshine, uh, which, for a movie where a lot of different cast members got a lot of um, attention for that, she did get a Golden Globe nomination for that, and I think she's really fantastic in, I in that movie. I also need to rewatch. Um, she's in The Night Listener. She's sort of part of the twist in The Night Listener. The Night Listener is essentially like a... It was based on... It was written by Armistead Maupin. It was based on his novel, right? But it also, like, is kind of like a um, J.T. Leroy-esque, like, um, you know, fabricated uh, fabricated child kind of story. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, she's in The Dead Girl, which is a movie that, like... I remember, I, I know I saw The Dead Girl, but I don't really remember very much about it, and I should watch it again. Indie Spirit um, nominee. Indie Spirit nominee. She's an evening in 2007. We've done an episode what on that. What if there was an evening? To it. What if there was an evening? Um, what's the next big one that I can see? Um, she's kind of like, well, oh. This then is she when makes, United States of Terror starts to take this over. This is when United States of Terror happens. she's like, small yes. comedy. She does a lot of, like, small comedies that not all You never watched see. United States of Terror, right? No, I need to loop back because I... I would love to be able to talk to you about that show because it's really... It's of its time. It's not always great, but I always loved it, if that makes sense. And, like, I have such deep affection for it. 
as a Diablo Cody devotee, it yeah. is embarrassing that I have not seen that, considering I have seen the Diablo Cody directorial debut <laughs> with Julian Huff that no one else has seen. I did not see that. I, I admit I did not see it. Um, that show went for three seasons, two seasons, how many seasons? Um, I believe it was three seasons, yeah. To only 36 episodes, you could blow through it quickly. Um I think she's tremendous in it. She wins a, a Emmy Award for it. It was one of those, why are we giving Emmys to comedies that aren't comedies kind of a thing that like people, other people always seem to care about a lot more than I do. Um, which isn't to say I never care about it, but it's not when I love something as much as I love Tony Collette. Like it's a dramedy, you know, dramedies yeah. exist. They are not a perfect fit in either category and we're just going to have to be adults about it and live with it. Um, certainly she's great enough in it that I'm happy she won an award for it. A lot of people are like, oh, so it's like it, the, the, you know, that it was essentially like awards bait that she's playing multiple personalities and whatever. And it's just like mm. to each their own. Um, she sort of comes back into movies through, um, supporting roles she's mm-hmm. you know supporting role in hitchcock i love her in enough said in essentially like the best friend role to uh to julia louis dreyfus um i think she's really fantastic in that would love to um, see her back in another hall of center at some point she's in tammy in such a weird role in tammy where she's like the person that tammy's husband is having the affair with or whatever and it's like that's such an oddly shaped movie that I still have some weird affection for, mostly because of um, some of the performances in it. But what a weird movie that was. Um, Miss You Already. Have you ever seen Miss You Already? I was about already? to ask you if you have seen it, because it's weird that I have seen it. Hardwick movie. Yeah. But I have You should see it. I think it's good. I think she's good. I think Drew is good. I think it's a very touching movie. It's sort of a tear. It's like a you know intentional tearjerker, but I found it very charming. And the same year as Krampus, which is a movie that I enjoy. Krampus does feel like, in many ways, to be like a precursor to like getting people ready for Tony Collette in the horror milieu, right? That like easing people into what Hereditary would end up being. what else is even happening? She's in Fun Mom Dinner, which was sort of like the... Oh, what was that movie with Mila Kunis and Kristen Bell Bad and Moms. Catherine Hahn? Bad Moms. It was sort of like, uh, you know, the the Sundance version of Bad Moms. I never saw it. Did you ever see it? I do I love Bridget not. Everett. Do you, like... I love Bridget Everett. Are you I kidding? I love Bridget Everett so much. I I struggled so much with the whole idea of getting my hopes up for somebody somewhere as an Emmy contender, even though I know, I know that like that was never going to happen. And I was being that kind of annoying person that I don't like, who's like, this is such bullshit that this specific super small thing that I love didn't get nominated. And it's like... I think be, there was just a, a lot of optimism for, for it, because that is a show that has yeah. amassed more and more respect and more and more audience as it has continued to go on. I think it's Mm -hmm. a miracle that it has a season three coming and I can't wait. (laughs) All right. So then we get to hereditary in 2018 since hereditary, she's been in velvet buzzsaw, which is such a weird movie. Uh, I loved her in knives out her every 
Her every facial expression in Knives Out is an absolute gift to the her world. immaculate performance as Gwyneth Paltrow. She is so good. <laughs> she was in the movie, the first movie I saw in a theater after COVID, which was Dream Horse, uh, a movie that asks the question of what if Tony Collette fell in love with a horse? <laughs> Just on the poster, I love. I the movie is whatever. Most, but what I loved about Dream Horse was just tweeting about Dream Horse. Of course. Also, so much by fun. the way, the movie is called Dream Horse. The horse in the movie Dream Horse is named Dream. So it is like. It sure fucking is. It is. The horse is named Dream, but the it's movie a dream is horse. Dream Horse. It's a Dream Horse. Not Dream, comma, a horse. Nope. Dream Horse. Dream, colon, a horse story. Uh, Next no, is I'm thinking of ending things. Which what did you think of this movie and her performance in it? Wasn't as high on her performance in the movie. But you I, liked the movie better than I did, right? Or no? I feel you like hated... I waffle on that movie as okay. I'm watching it. But I okay. do ultimately come out on the positive side of that movie. Especially for Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons. I'm thinking of ending things and Bo is Afraid have such similarities to each other that i'm fascinated that you like one and don't like the other i guess i can see how they can be categorized together but you don't think they have very similar vibes they may like i feel like they 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 make me feel very similar things there Although it's funny about... because I like Bo is Afraid better than I'm thinking of anything. So I'm like the exact yeah. same but opposite. So I, I don't think know. there's something mysterious about I'm thinking of ending things that invites you in in a way that Bo is Afraid just feels like. I don't feel that way. Uh, Interesting. It just feels like it's just uh, screaming everything out and there's not sure. really anything for me to uh-huh. interact with. And uh, or to, I like, think Bo is afraid. With... I think Bo is afraid is more interested in entertaining you even a little bit. I think I'm thinking of ending things is very much opposed to entertaining you at all points. But I do think it has some things it wants you to think about. Whereas I don't know what Bo is afraid. Yeah, has even going for it. I could agree with that. I could agree with that. Like, I, I am interested in seeing Bo is afraid a second time. I kind of am too, though I can't. I think I might love it even more. Out of my day for that. But, like, maybe I'll watch that on Christmas Day. What if I watch that <laughs> on Christmas Day? You can watch my it for Afraid Day. <laughs> Good. Um, all right. Anyway, I think she's completely wasted in Nightmare Alley. I yeah. didn't see Mafia Mama. I'm not it's uninterested. To be horrible. <laughs> I'm not uninterested in checking it out, but it it is supposed to be horrible. Yeah, that's a movie that I will watch, and when I watch it, I don't care if it's bad. I just uh-huh. I won't. Very very excited, though also nervous for her being in Bong Joon Ho's Mickey Seventeen next year. Why are we nervous? Because it's a lot to live up to. Her being because of the roles that she's taken in things like Nightmare Alley. I am nervous that she is not going to be served by whatever role she is in in this movie. This is true. Um, I've not read I, the I novel that Jun-ho it's based more on more than that, but but I also trust Guillermo del Toro, and and you know what I mean. It's not like we know almost nothing about Mickey Seventeen, but like the vibes that I get is a little more, and because it is an ensemble movie with. Robert Pattinson at the head of it 
I know. I should I'm read this thinking book. Thinking of Snowpiercer in a way, I, I think we should do Snowpiercer. Um, Before this movie comes out, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Because, the cast like, is incredible, though. It's Robert Pattinson, Stephen Yun, Naomi Aki, Tony Collette, Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Mwah. Cannot wait. But like, Perfecto. you think of Snowpiercer and you're like, Octavia Spencer is given nothing to do in that movie. I know. I know. I know. So, um, we love she's Tony also Cole. in, she's also currently filming, or at least recently oh was filming, uh, a new Clint Eastwood movie called Juror Number Two, where uh, Nicholas Holt, the premise is, according to Wikipedia, a juror serving on a murder trial realizes he is at fault for the victim's death. Interesting. Uh, Will I be Nicholas able to Holt, understand this movie if I have not seen The Juror? Starring Alec Baldwin into me more since it's juror Nicholas Holt plays the titular juror number two. Tony Collette, Zoe Deutsch, Kiefer Sutherland, Leslie Bibb are the other people. I will say this: there are Clint Eastwood movies that sometimes seem like it's just Clint Eastwood like noodling around with some weird, you know, notion that crossed his mind or whatever. Uh, uh, your your uh, the mules, your um cry machos or whatever and then there are some that are plottier and i'm like i'm a little bit interested i know that like sometimes plottier means um oh what's the kathy bates oscar nomination um richard jewell richard jewell richard jewell is very plotty and that didn't turn out very well so like i guess there's probably more reason to to dread this than not dread this but i don't know i'm kind of into the idea is that crazy <laughs> we we shall see. We shall indeed see. All right. Um, we love Tony Collette. We do. I we think do. the closest she ever got to a second nomination was about a boy. I think that's probably correct. I think she was probably in that like sixth or seventh spot for supporting actress in O two. Yeah. Right. Like, who were the other ones? I guess Susan Sarandon and Igby was sort of floating around there. Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York, they gave it the old college try, trying for that to happen. I think Tony was probably up there. I think that movie was very well liked. I think she's so good in that movie. Um, she's She has a way of playing characters who very much resist the idea of the audience having too much sympathy for them. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And I think that was an early example of that where you could very easily have played that role to just be like, Oh, she's the, like, she's the sweet, but frazzled mom. And she's, you know, in a bad spot. And she is all of those things. But like, there are different, there are moments in that movie where she's just like, really, you can understand where, I mean, speaking of Nicholas Holt, Oh my God, juror number two is a, is a reunion. It's an about a boy reunion. It's an about a boy reunion. I didn't even think about that immediately. Holy shit. Um, but you can see where Nicholas Holt's character in About a Boy has real struggles with, like, her being mm-hmm. his mom, and she, like, she needs him too much sometimes, and she expects, you know, uh, things from him, and she's she's just, she's quite good And that. I think that's probably right. I think that, I do think Hereditary, I do feel like she was probably 
in ninth or tenth place for Hereditary. But that's that's you, you and I can uh, intelligent people can disagree on that. And what and do you think your favorite, your actual favorite Tony Collette performance is? I think it's Velvet Goldmine. Yeah, it's either Velvet Goldmine or Muriel for me. I mean, Muriel, it's just <laughs> how often does she get a full lead like a to dominate a movie in that way even hereditary she has to somewhat share it with alex wolf i would argue yes although i put alex wolf as a supporting actor and i know i got pushed back from a, uh, from a bunch of other people and i i would still say he's supporting but like a lot of people slotted him when they were doing their own awards they slotted him as lead um listen, neither of them are with the protagonist of the story the protagonist is queen lee Uh, (laughs) but i mean like yeah i think he's a supporting performance too did you see that kathleen chalfont is the person who uh is uncredited but appears as ellen what i literally watching it again this time i still don't look like it doesn't really look like her and i don't know whether that is is like erroneous information i don't know i would like somebody to like that doesn't investigate. Look like I read that in like a couple different spots though, and either that's like misinformation that struck out there, but it really does not look like her. So like I don't know what's going on. Hold please. Um all right, I'm going to hold. While you look that up, I'm going to try and come up with my top 5 Tony Collette performances. I think it's her. You think it's Kathleen Shawfont? I'm seeing multiple things that are crediting her with the performance, so it's not just someone. But maybe it's everybody coming from the same bad information. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Kathleen Chalfont, get get back at us. Uh, Tweet us at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Yeah. Uh, If you have cell access from the island that makes you old, or the beach that makes you old. Wait, she was in that? She's in old! As who? Uh, I think she... It, Is she one starts, of the scientists? I think so. Is this a or Lena no, Olin? Is she, is she older Vicky Creeps? No, I think she no, that's is like Beth Vicky Creeps' mom. Or something. Hold on. Looking up old. We've got so many tangents. I love an episode with a lot of tangents. This is going to be a long episode, especially after we put in the movie game insert. I'm... Uh, uh, Kathleen Chalfont, Kathleen Chalfont, Kathleen Chalfont. Agnes, Charles's mother. Who's Charles? Charles is Rufus Sewell. Does Rufus Sewell have a flashback to his mother? No, she... Uh, oh, is Kathleen Chalfont the first one who dies on old? No, she's... Oh! Maybe. I don't Maybe. remember anything about old. Hold on. I gotta see old Except again. for like yes. Abby Lee go- turns into Yes, a she's there with it. She is. Yes, she absolutely, she dies like right there. Like immediately. Wow. I love Kathleen Chalfant. I should remember more about her performance in Old. I need to see Old again. What a good movie. Um, let's talk about Ari Aster. Okay, let's. Some people really okay. This is going to be where we're going to get into our elevated horror conversation because I do feel like <laughs> the reason why a lot of people hate him is because I think they place a lot of their feelings about elevated horror onto him. I don't I think know though. People like, also place a lot of their feelings of like he makes these extreme movies, and 
I think people who people project onto him this idea of like, well, this is what you think you are as a great filmmaker is just being loud or something. I think people project these airs of pretentiousness onto him that I don't understand because I don't think Hereditary is a pretentious movie. I don't think it's if you're talking if you're annoyed with the idea of like A24 horror or like movies that are more creepy than horrific or that are more vibes than actual like blood and guts or whatever and i or mean maybe maybe it's that, that make you work a little bit to figure out what's going on sure but i i there's there's a there's a streak of inferiority complex that i don't love in this sort of anti a24 horror, anti-elevated horror, anti-Ari Aster thing, where it feels like people are being like, you think you're smarter than me or whatever. And it's just like, it's such a bad look. And it's partly, it's also because I don't see where these two things are incompatible, where we can't have horror that is more bloody and visceral and gross and sort of like base you know what i mean it's just like appealing to our more basic like instincts or whatever i don't see why that's incompatible with horror that is more psychological or emotional i know everybody's very hair trigger about um (laughs) trauma you know what i mean as but i also don't think if the interesting thing about hereditary is this People is not gave a movie. It like the, oh, it's another horror. It's movie not about a metaphor drama, movie. And it's it not. is what it is. It's, it's not, not a metaphor movie. This is not a metaphor for grief. Grief happens in this movie, but like grief exists on the same plane of reality as what is happening in this movie. What is happening yeah. in this movie is not a metaphor for anything beyond a cult wants to bring a you know the king of hell back to earth. Like this is not that. It's Midsommar. If you want to say Midsommar is a metaphor for grief sure yes i will grant you that but I also, also i think resent this like putting things into a box of wh- whether you want to say it's pretension or like i resent it on both sides that like there might be some looking down uh, uh, that like something like scream isn't a serious movie or i also resent like the idea that uh, I don't know. Hereditary is uh, annoying because its ideas are obscure in the film itself. Like, I don't know. I, th- I hate the elevated horror conversation because it's like there have always been horror movies with more on its mind than just scaring you. What is The Brood? David Cronenberg's The Brood. What is that if not like an extended horror metaphor? You know what I mean? Like that's a movie that wears its metaphor on its sleeve or whatever. That doesn't mean that movie isn't good horror. That movie's great horror. Right. I mean, the, The Exorcist is pinned as like the scariest movie ever made right but like yeah what is that movie if not a reaction to everything happening culturally yeah in america the decade before it like i understand the idea that like a term like elevated horror is very much a marketing term and what it exists for is it's a dog whistle for people who think they don't like horror because they don't like it's too scary for them and or I think so it was then just you can say like people who want to say, oh, but you should take this horror movie seriously. See, okay, I, I think that. 
But I think that's, I don't think that's the right interpretation of it. I think that's the, the inferiority compact complex talking. I think what it exists for is, is it exists so that people who are squeamish about blood, are squeamish about gore, and are scaredy cats, that you can say, this is the kind of horror movie that you might like anyway, because it's offering you something a little bit different. I think it's hilarious if you get people to get into the theater and see Hereditary <laughs> with that promise, because like you're going to scar people. even better, Midsommar. Um. <laughs> but I think, I think people want to, and I think A24, which is a very marketing-savvy studio and distributor, who like, who, like say what you will, they care for making sure that their movies get the biggest audience possible. And I think if to do that, they want to handhold certain portions of their audience that are resistant to seeing something that is too horrific. I don't mind that. I understand where, like, nobody likes to, like feel like they're buying into a marketing, you know, uh, sure. narrative or whatever. So then you look at something like uh, elevated horror and you like make the jerk off motion or whatever. But I don't I don't like the interpretation that this is meant to communicate that like, oh, this is like smarter horror. Yeah, or this I is, you know it. what I mean? And I think that's where a lot of the backlash comes from is people being like, so you're saying <laughs> I do think it's funny that it's people being like, so you're saying the blob isn't smart and it's just like you like a movie called The Blob, like maybe just own the fact that like you don't need to care about whether people think you're smart or not. Or for it's liking... like, are you saying that Friday the Thirteenth is stupid? Yeah, those yes, movies, those movies are stupid, yes, but I love them anyway. Fine. I don't care. Right, right. I'm not putting them in a box of smart and stupid to enjoy right. them. Like, I mean, those uh, it, it it you know that's maybe a bad example for what i'm talking about but like no but i suppose scream is like the ultimate example because that is a very well made very smart very well performed movie but scream is a movie also that marketed itself as the smart person's horror movie because it like it talked about the rules of horror movies so like kind of what are we what are we doing i just i guess i also don't buy into the idea i've never bought into the idea that elevated horror is something that exists because like it's always like the idea of what is elevated horror is like it's a horror movie with something more on its mind than well blood, call it guts, whatever you jokes. want though but there are i think if you if you tell me this movie falls under the umbrella of elevated horror i can kind of i can imagine what kind of a movie we're talking about where that's like heavily psychological something like jacob's ladder right you know what i mean which yeah. like there was not a term for elevated horror back then but that was like psychological horror as opposed to a slasher as opposed to um what was the one with um the girl was going to get married and adrian brody was there and they all tried to kill her ready or not Uh, ready or not isn't elevated horror right you know what i mean like ready or not is a slasher and i think a lot of people sort of like carried the banner for that movie we're like this is what we're talking about we don't need elevated horror it's like maybe both can exist and maybe it's just a way of describing what shape and form a movie takes versus the other. And maybe I don't mind that. Maybe you also have to look at the term as a reaction from the previous stages of like, what was popular horror, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of horror movies, because like 
ahead of like the elevated. Ho- I'm like breaking scare quotes scare quotes scare quotes quotes. yeah yeah before the like elevated horror movement like what was the widespread horror trend and it's like torture found footage movies it's uh like uh, i guess some traditional horror movies like the conjuring the major trend is torture porn torture porn yeah yeah and what's and before before that was like wb sort of teen horror was before that and before that before was a little bit of like wise a wise ass scream, uh, like revisionist uh, slash. Uh, well, I would even put scream in the in the like teen horror sort of bucket because it co- sort of kicked that off. Yeah. But before that was kind of your like later stage. It was when like franchises like Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween were all puttering through their like late stages. Mm-hmm. And before that was your eighty slashers. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like. It's you're right. It's all everything does seem to be a little bit of a reaction to the thing that came before it. And I'm sure that like we are already in the, you know, people are reacting against, you know, elevated horror. Maybe that's just sort of the way it's going to go. But I I've never had as much of a problem with that term as other people seem to have. And And I don't know. I guess to pull if we're talking about horror as a genre and to pull it into like talking about Ari Aster yeah. He said he's not he doesn't see himself as a horror filmmaker and as his like the projects he wants to make next they're not horror yeah. movies like he categorizes Bo is afraid as a comedy I feel right. like Midsommar to me is a comedy and Hereditary is very funny but like his quote though about uh hereditary though he says the film is a horror film i think when you watch a lot of the press for hereditary i think there was you can you can always get a sense of like what the talking points are a little bit what has been sort of and i think everybody involved was very careful to be like no it is a horror movie let don't let me tell you it's not but he said this film is a horror film it's unabashedly one but as i was pitching it i was pitching it i was describing it as a family tragedy that curdles into a nightmare and that Mm -hmm. is what the movie is like that does describe the movie i think fairly well and that like it's this very dark family tragedy that becomes something so terrifying and 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 scary and i do think this is a very it's not one this is not a movie like i know i pick on this movie too much but what was the um the Krisha director's follow-up um uh, it comes at night it I comes like at night movie. where it was that was all just like dread and vibes that ultimately had no payoff and it made me so mad um that i think is a a tragedy masquerading with horror tropes i i wouldn't even sure go but i think that. but i think there is a trend of sometimes where it's like it's all build up i think for as much as i didn't hate skinnamarink i didn't love skinnamarink i was kind of in the middle but i think one of the things that people hated of it was just like it was all build up and then no payoff and the payoff is in like these like little sort of like you really have to be like paying attention to the margins and like listening like really closely to like whispers I think the, and whatnot. The payoff of Skinnamarink is after you've watched the movie and you're like laying in bed at night and you're like, can I just go to sleep, please? I can't yeah. be staring into the corners of my room. Try try having a nephew who's the age of having all of those like weird little Fisher Price toys and whatever, <laughs> like just lying around in your home. Um 
I but do anyway, Skinnamarink has some legitimately terrifying images in it. I agree with that. Um, that's why I I like it as much as I do. I don't love it, but I like it a lot. But I think Hereditary is not that. Hereditary pays its shit off. Like Hereditary yeah. delivers the goods, and, and I don't know why I feel like I have to defend like, this. You know, movie. when you've had too much cake or something, that it's like, yeah. oh, this isn't what I asked for. Maybe next Halloween we'll do Midsommar and we can talk about that because that's a movie that I've thought about probably a good deal less than I've thought about uh, Hereditary. I've I've also only ever seen Midsommar one time. It's definitely I'm really, my favorite of the three. I, I, and, I'm, and I'd love to dig into the why of that, why I maybe prefer, maybe I don't, maybe a second viewing of Midsommar, I would like it better. I will um, say my my nitpicky thing about Midsommar is everybody was all like, ooh, the director's cut of the movie. And I think that the director's cut is markedly not as good. Director's cuts are not as good. I will say the only director's cut, I think I prefer the JFK director's cut ooh, Blade to... Well, sure. But like even like the almost famous director's cut, which is essentially just like more of this movie that I love. That I, I enjoy do see. I haven't seen that and I do want I to enjoy that. the bootleg cut of Almost Famous, but I do like the theatrical cut more. Mm-hmm. I will like them both, but I do like the theatrical cut. It more. used it's... to be for The Exorcist that the most available, like almost entire entirely the only available one was the recut that has a few extra like the spider walk thing is the thing that everybody wants so that's right that version is there but like that cut sucks (laughs) like not sucks it's still a great movie but like it adds the well guess what we're friends ending and it's it deflates the whole movie friendship cinema chris friendship cinema uh, all that Lee Cobb wants in that movie is a friend to go to the movies with. <laughs> I love that character. Who among us? Who uh, among us? But yeah. Um, all right. No, like, I think Midsommar is also the thing of, like, to figure out what's going on. It's all there, but it's obscured. And I think that there's elements of that in the director's cut where it's just, like, it's spelling too much out for you. Yeah. it's It takes half of what's special of that movie away. I have two – I know we're, we're running long, but I have two things that I really do have to mention. One of which is we haven't really talked about Alex Wolf enough in this, and I just want to ask your opinion of his performance in this movie because I've talked about him a lot. Oh, I love his performance in this movie. That shot of him – there are so many – I literally did a little like laundry list of like all of the things in this movie that – like just images of this movie that will never escape me. One of which is when he turns and looks and sees in his reflection and his reflection is just like smirking at the him. The dopiest ass smile. Oh, I hate it so much, but I also love it. It's so good. Um, <laughs> you mentioned Tony Collette banging her head on the attic door. Terrifying. Tony on the ceiling. Amazing. The ants on Peter's face I mentioned – which is a callback to the ants on Charlie's decapitated face. Every time Alex Wolf cries, it is hilarious. But also, I think genuinely affecting. Like, I have such... I love his character so much, I'm so sad for him by the end. But also, the way that he contorts his face in in the later classroom scene, where he, like, where he's essentially just, like... It looks like he's having a stroke. He's trying to, like, escape his skeleton. It's... Ugh. Um... I just think he's incredible. So he was nominated for the MTV. By this point, it was the MTV Movie and Television Awards. Barf. Um, most frightened performance, which used to be for a time most scared, scared as, shit. as shit performance. Um, <laughs> the winner of that is 
Sandra Bullock for Bird Box because that was such a huge hit. Um, also nominated were Rian Reese for the Halloween remake, Linda Cardellini for The Curse of La Lorona, and Victoria Pedretti for The Haunting of Hill House. Which, for as much as I object, lineup. like for as much as I object to including television in this at all, Victoria Pedretti, like that's what you would nominate her for is most most frightened performance. I still think justice for Alex Wolf, he should have won this. Uh, 100%. The most bullshitty, though, can we talk about how somehow Tony Collette did not win the Saturn Award for Best <laughs> Actress? Of all the things that she would have... for the Saturn Award? Okay, I'm going to give you this lineup. Don't look it up, because I'm going to read it to you. Okay. Is there it as were... bad as the MTV one? There were seven nominees. We've talked about Go the Saturn Awards. Critics Saturn Critics. Awards are essentially supposed to be the science fiction and horror awards. Yeah. They're, they've they've suffered mission creep like you would not believe. So Tony Collette doesn't win for Hereditary. Bullshit. That is the most uh, obvious choice for a best performance in a horror or sci-fi movie. Why would you not do that? Oh well, because it was because those awards straddled years lupita nyong'o was also eligible for us so you'd say because it straddles years guess who also didn't win that's so lupita nyong'o for us that's also nominated well maybe they decided to go campy because also nominated was who octavia spencer for ma octavia spencer doesn't win for ma nor does nicole kidman for destroyer or brie larson for captain marvel or somehow we're including Emily Blunt for Mary Poppins Returns, also didn't win. Sci-fi and horror, great. You're going to be so mad at who wins. It does fit sci-fi and horror. It is Jamie Lee Curtis for the first David Gordon Green Halloween. Have I radicalized you yet? I understand the logic of a Saturn voter in going that way. I just maybe need to move on. I I can't. I, I don't see how you can see Tony Collette in Hereditary and Lupita Nyong'o in Us and give it to anybody but either one, like one of right. them. What the fuck? Saturn Awards, you're on notice. Even if you weren't before, <laughs> you're on notice. All right. Anything else before we move into the IMDb game? You know what? Good movie um chris all i wanted to say finally in our last uh note i never wanted to be your mother all right let, let, let our listeners know about the IMDb. <laughs> she should say that to all her gay fans screaming screaming <laughs> mother at her i should say i did get to meet tony collette after a screening that that campaign event that i talked about that i was invited to it was a screening of hereditary and then a little like wine reception where everybody got to like crowd around tony collette um and, and she has a reputation for being extremely wonderful and lovely she was extremely wonderful and lovely it was a lot of people around there so it wasn't like you had like one-on-one time with tony collette and so everybody kind of like took turns asking their question and it was a little bit like Oh God, am I going to have to like, and I knew that like, I couldn't get out of this whole thing without mentioning the hours because it's my favorite movie. And I felt, and and so it was you like have a duty to me specifically. Well, and like it had gotten past me. I had sort of asked something about hereditary, which I don't remember. And it had gotten past me. And then I was like, Oh fuck, I can't not ask her about the hours. And so before she had like moved on to like a different group, I was just like, I just need to say, 
The Hours is my favorite movie. I loved you so much in it. And she was already, I think, sort of like mentally moved on beyond our group. She was like, oh, thank you. And then like totally moved on. And I was just like, <laughs> damn it, that didn't go the way I wanted it to. Um, But anyway, so. I'm sorry yeah. for that. Uh, anyway, IMDb game. IMDb game listeners every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for if any of those titles are television voice only performances or non-acting credits we'll mention that up front after two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles release years as a clue if that's not enough it just becomes a free-for-all of hints and a surrounding group (laughs) of naked cult members Amazing. Throwing points on you. Who doesn't love that? All right, Chris, would you like to give first or guess first? Uh, I feel like you've been guessing first a lot, so I'm going... No, you've been... (laughs) I don't know. Um, I'm gonna... You're gonna guess first. Okay. All right. What do you have? I did the Ari Aster thing, looking at Ari Aster filmmakers... All Who right. else to choose but from this year's bow is Fred Joaquin Phoenix, your favorite, who we have Joaquin. somehow not done? That's wild. That's wild. All right. I'm going to say Joker. Uh, sorry, wrong tab. Incorrect. Fuck. What wow. a gift to me specifically. I'm going to say Gladiator. Gladiator is correct. Okay. Gladiator. Um. God, it's so shocking. Walk the line? Walk the line, correct. Interesting. But not Joker. Fascinating. Okay. All right. Joaquin Phoenix. Um Okay. I don't think Bo is afraid it's gonna be there. I don't know. It'd be such a joke on me if you were never really here. Is that the title of it? You were never really here. Mm, yes. Right. Yeah. The the yeah. It would be such a joke on me if that was there. It's not going to be something like early Joaquin, like to die for or inventing the Abbots or anything like that. The master. The master, correct. So what do I have? Two correct? You have, you have one wrong guess and you have one more to go. One more to go. Okay. Okay. So. Mr. Oh. Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, Mr. Joaquin Phoenix. The village. Incorrect. So you're going to get your year, which is probably okay. going to get you there. It's 2013. 2013? Oh, it's uh, her. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Ladies That's and gentlemen, her. her. Um, <laughs> my two favorite performances what a gift. by him. What a gift to memes that was. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, her. <laughs> 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 My two favorite Joaquin performances are the two that you uh, got last. Her and... Uh, the Master. And The Master. Interesting. 
That's an interesting like dichotomy of favorite Joaquins. That's not a bad. I mean, it is very odd that Joker is not there, but that I do think is a pretty decent I think my, known for for him. I think my two favorite Joaquins are Gladiator and Signs, which also have an interesting dichotomy he of like two very different characters. Signs. He's really good in Signs. He gets to I be like funny. So I do think he's a. Funny he does. Character. He does. I like him so much in that movie. All right. For you, I delved into that big mishmash of actresses who were contenders in 2018. We have never done the great New York Film Critics Circle Prize winner of that year, Regina (gasps) Hall. Oh, wow. Okay, so the question... Girls Trip is here. Yes. Yes. Good. Um, The question is, how many scary movies are there? That is the question. That is the question. Um... You didn't mention any TV, so that Showtime show that I feel like I would like, but nobody seemed to. I did, Black Monday. I saw the first season of that, and I thought it was really good, and then I kept meaning to keep watching, and I, it was a pandemic and whatever. I do wonder if Support the Girls is there just for, like, SEO reasons. I'm going to say Support the Girls. Not Support the Girls. Fortunately not. Go watch it currently on Criterion Channel. She's Um, so good. So is Haley Lee Richardson. Both of them on my ballot that year. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I'll just say scary movie. Scary movie, correct. Uh, is scary movie two on there? Not scary movie two. So you're, okay. you're, uh, that's your second strike. Your two years are 2006 and 2009. Okay. So this is still like scary movie territory because like, did she stay on through four? I am not the scary movie scholar that you might think I am. Which is, is scary movie two the one that Cindy, this is bones. Cindy, this is a skeleton. Um, I see. This is where I, two, this is where I, I come two. into a problem. Uh, I don't know. Perfect joke. Um, Cindy, this is bones. This is a skeleton. Um, okay. Oh, six, oh, nine. She's not always in comedies. That's the hard thing. But, like, you don't remember her from non-comedies. But I have to believe that one of these isn't a comedy. But 0609. She's not really in any horror movies. Would you like me to start delivering hints? Sure. Well, you were on the right track when you said what the defining question of this was going to be. Is uh, Are they comedies or not? One of them is. Okay. So one is and one isn't. Yeah. Which one isn't? Oh, nine? Uh, oh, nine. Oh, nine. <sighs> well, but I think you gave, up, you gave up too soon on a... a Scary stretch. Movie 3? Not Scary Movie 3. Scary Movie 4. Scary Movie 4. There you go. Scary Movies 1 and 4 are on this list. Okay, so 09, it's a non-comedy. Right. And she's it's in, a like, real meat and potatoes thriller, seemingly. I've never seen it. It is from a name director, but not like... I don't know how good a sense of auteurship this director has so like probably a studio more than, director yeah like but like probably more of a sense of authorship than we probably give him credit for um 
Was this like a Tony Scott? It's not, but I I I think this guy makes Tony Scott-esque movies. Not in the same way, but like I think all of his movies you could be like, oh, I could see Tony Scott have directed having directed that. Right. It's not like Gore Verbinski. This one particularly, he's... I could be like, oh, I could have seen t- a Tony Scott version. Right, of this movie. right, right. It's um it's not Michael Bay. It's uh, nope, but that's it maybe like... rhymes. It maybe rhymes. Rhymes. Billy Ray. <laughs> no, the, he does not make action movies. He makes like legal thrillers. Right. Um. David Gray. She was in the Babylon music video. No, but you're so close. David. Nope. Uh, David Slay. Um. No. Gray. So, oh, James, not James Gray. Not James Gray. <laughs> Different vibe. Different Gray. Yeah. F. Gary Gray. F. Gary Gray. Yes. Um, it's F. probably Gary... the one movie of his that is like the most anonymous, but like, well, I definitely remember it existing. <sighs> this would have been the one situated between Be Cool in 05 oh and straight out of Compton in 2015. Yeah. So it stars an Oscar winner. Then no. And somebody who I don't think will ever be nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> because they're Regina not. played I would imagine uh the Oscar winner's wife. It's not um Is it? Is it Denzel? It's not Denzel because he's been in an. What was his F. Gary Gray movie? Um, his F. Gary Gray movie was F. Gary Gray. Who who directed Roman J. Israel? That is. Um, oh my god! It's not F. Gary Gray. Okay, uh, what is Denzel's F. Gary Gray movie? Will Smith. Not Will Smith. Jesus. So. Maybe F. Gary Gray's never directed Denzel Washington. That sounds insane. Didn't he direct, like, Out of Time? What year would that have been? Like, 03? Let's see. No, he directed, uh... Is this... Out, no, Out of Time is Carl Franklin, I think. No, A Man Apart is Vin Diesel. Out of Time is Carl Franklin. The man apart is Vin Diesel, not uh, Denzel Washington. He's maybe never directed Denzel Washington. That's crazy. Weird. Um, I should watch Out of Time. Um, I've never seen it. Because I like Carl Franklin's movies. I do, too. Um, All right, anyway. Oscar winner, uh, 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 acting pariah, (laughs) sort of. Not Not really. That's too mean. That's too mean. No. No, I mean these two people. It's two different people. An Oscar winner and... uh, He's not a pariah. He's just not a actor. Oh, I. Why did I think that this person who will never win an Oscar, you were saying was a woman? Uh, why did no. I hear you? Acting no, two male leads. Two male leads from '09. From '09, James Franco. No, no. He's this person hasn't done bad things. He's just like not regarded as a very good actor. He's actually kind of having a weird like Liam Neeson esque renaissance, as if like, oh, you're just gonna like make like 
Dumb action movies now. That's fun. That would be Stallone? No. No, lower profile than that. This person, like, tried to be in a musical in the aughts and it, like, went poorly. Russell Crowe. No, more poorly, surprisingly. Really? Yeah. Who got, like, worse musical reviews than Russell Crowe? Oh, plus Russell Crowe was not the Someone in No, aughts. The aughts, the aughts, the aughts, the aughts. Who did that go poorly for? Although Cats isn't not a bad avenue if you want to... This person is in Cats. No. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah. Andrew Lloyd Webber in the aughts. Oh, Gerard Butler. Yes. Gerard oh, Butler I do not Oscar know Gerard winner. Butler movies. That's why this has taken so long. Um, yeah, but I think that the, uh, the oh, Oscar Law winner... Oh, Abiding Citizen. Fuck, yes. Good job. Jeez, Jamie Foxx. I have never seen that movie. How did you pull that? I would not have been able to pull that. I'm, Ger- I'm I knew Gerard Butler and Jamie Foxx were in it. Amazing. Amazing. I've never um, seen it. All right. Well, you got Didn't your, know she uh, was in that movie. <laughs> she plays uh, either his wife or his sister. They share the same last name. So uh, I would imagine his wife. His wife. All right. Um, well, there we have it. That's our episode, Chris. We've already gone too long. God, but w- once we... Once we hail payment, this is probably going to be a close to three hour episode. Motherfucker. Okay. Uh, There's a little bit of airtime that we can cut out while we were. We'll be fine. Our our listeners uh, love us. I don't know if you want more. I think a good portion of our listeners are going to see the running time hit their podcast feed for this movie and be very happy. I hope so. If you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. You should also, if you haven't already, uh, uh, hop onto our Patreon, This Had Oscar Buzz Turbulent Brilliance at patreon.com slash thishadoscarbuzz. We'll have a time. Chris, where can the listeners find more of you? Uh, Twitter and letterbox at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance, and Taylor Cole for our theme song. Please remember, you can rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So finish painting that damn diorama about your mom breastfeeding your kid and write something nice about us. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Oh, oh, yeah.